Hello and welcome to the 250, your fortnightly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And this week, in something of a break from tradition for the podcast, we are actually looking at a movie that is on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. We are looking, we're hoping to have a very passionate debate here. We're talking about the passion of Joan of Arc. And joining us for this long-delayed discussion that I think we first promised sometime around February last year. I think there's an episode where we go next week. We'll be talking about the passion of Joan of Arc. So we are finally got there at uh, two this fantastic episode 300 that hasn't come <laughs> out yet. Right? <laughs> no, no, we did just do like our episode 282. We're working on 300. We're going to get there. Um, but or yes, is it the episode episode two hundred is the one that's missing. Right? No, episode three hundred is the one that's missing. That's the one where it's oh, like we need to. Episode two fifty is the one. Episode episode two fifty is there. Episode two fifty exists. Is this episode two eight four? No. Okay, <laughs> I'm confused. Sorry. So so am I. I. If it's part of a season or a monument, I move it out of sequence. Okay. If it's if it's something we just don't organize because like one of us gets married, and yes, I'm using that excuse to pick a hypothetical example. One uh, of us, not saying who, not saying who it was, who's enjoying a happily married life with his wonderful wife. Um, but I I do think that generally in that case, then we just don't do it, and we come back and we do it when we can. Okay. So if we're missing, say, the end of a season about say a director like Francis Ford Coppola. That would be one where I preserve the, ah. the number of sequence. This episode, however, uh, which has been a very long way around to getting the subject we're going to talk about, which is The Passion of Joan of Arc, is something we've wanted to do for a while. Um, because during the pandemic, I reached out to the wonderful Max Tolan. Uh, he talked to us uh, a couple of years ago about Buster Keaton. And I wanted to ask about Sherlock Jr. And I asked, like, would you like to come back? Would you like to talk about something? And he was like, this is a movie that I would love to talk about. So, so Max... What is it about Joan of Arc that you want to talk about? What is it about Joan of Arc that I want to talk about? Aren't we supposed to I mean, wait until yeah. we're in the spoiler zone for that question? Uh, <laughs> oh, fine. Fine, fine. Fine, I'm going to introduce the other guest now. That you had your shot, Max. I did. Um, I had my shot. Uh, this, I've, I've just loved this movie for so long, and um, I've never been able to perfectly enunciate why. And so I thought that if I were to go on a podcast where other people could talk about it, I would be less at a loss for words. Perfect. And we, we do have a, a guest, another guest, with, with equally wonderful words, words to say about Joan of Arc. Uh, regular recurring guest in the podcast, Phil Bagnell. How are you, Phil? Uh, good evening. I am very well, thank you. And I'm sorry to hear that Max thinks that uh, having the likes of me here will help him elucidate on his passion for the passion, because I'm depending on him to make my elucidation sound more erudite. Already, there, I mean, to there was... verbiage. <laughs> There was a great bit of business there for audio listeners when we said, uh, when we were introducing Phil, he was looking over his shoulder. What if there had been somebody had walked out of the background, like holding a microphone? No, that would have I mean, like, I am the third guest. hilarious, but I'd be dead from a heart attack now. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we are talking, obviously, about Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928 French silent movie, The Passion of Joan of Arc, one of the landmarks uh, in world cinema, one of the landmarks in silent filmmaking. And I guess then, like, to ease us into this conversation, Max, since you're the one who kind of recommended this, since this came up in conversation with you, do you remember the first time that you saw it? How did you come to feel so passionately about it? This is one of the stranger things, is that when I when I look back at the films that I rank the highest on my personal list of great films, and The Passion of Joan of Arc is one of them, I have no memory of the first time I saw it anymore. I can almost guarantee you that it was on a VHS circa 2004 uh, in the in the library of the engineering school that I was attending at the time. 
but I actually went back through my notes for this purpose to see if I had any notes because I used to keep assiduous, detailed, you know, trial minutes notes of uh, the movies that I watched. And the podcast is written from those notes. It is. It absolutely is. I used to keep the... It's funny because Brisson said the same thing for the trial of Joan of Arc. He's like, we took the actual transcripts. I am the author, but I only use the actual transcripts for the... And it, and was, okay, thanks, guys. Uh, but anyway, so I went back through, and the earliest record I could find, I wrote it as, this is my fifth time watching this movie, and here are my thoughts on it. And that was 2008. And so, I mean, like, I don't know how many dozen times I've probably seen this film and uh, my thoughts on it keep evolving as I change who I am as a person. It's one of the films that has traveled through time with me, uh, no matter how my own personal beliefs and my personal Weltanschauung, you know, worldview shifts. This movie keeps shifting with me. And uh, wow, that sounds stupid. But I, I don't know. This is this is one of the few films that I, I haven't left behind from who I was as a kid. And, uh, you know, isn't isn't new only a uh, new love only in adulthood. It, it, it sort of traveled with me. And I don't know, that's incredibly precious to me. And that's quite remarkable for a film, and I'm sure we'll get into it. We talk about like the production development and release history of it has had something of an evolution and a journey of itself. That's right. Towards like self-actualization. Um, for it to be a constant uh, throughout your life is, is remarkable. Phil, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time that you saw uh, The Passion of Joan? Um, most like Max, not specifically, but I could pinpoint it to some time when it was during my college years. So we're talking maybe 2006, 2007. And... I haven't watched it as often. I could count the number of times I've watched it probably uh, on the fingers of one hand plus another one today. So say half a dozen times. But for all that, that might be a relatively small amount for a film that I consider, especially after just re-watching it before I joined you guys, like it's not just a film that I consider one of the greatest ever made. It's one that is sat with me personally too. I would have it on like a favorites list of mine. And there is an undeniable power to it, um, regardless of where you're coming from. As as uh, Max said, it is it has an effect regardless of your own personal background. Your that wonderful word Viltanschung that doesn't get used near enough. Um, yeah, wherever you're coming from, I think it has something to offer, which is at least part of the reason that it has endured. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into other reasons as we continue our discussion. I mean, very briefly, just in terms of background, uh, this is a very interesting film to talk about a number of levels. Most obviously, let's talk a little bit about the whole Joan of Arkness of it, because it's this feels like something that's kind of important that kind of gets lost when talking about like history and talking about like this film in its context. Joan of Arc kind of a big deal and kind of particularly a big deal around the time that this movie was released mm. uh joan of arc very famously obviously a french saint uh there had been like a discussion around the canonization of her had begun i think in 1894 uh you know she was beatif- uh, beatified in 1909 and she became like an icon during the first world war 
You would have like regiments of French soldiers who would march under her banner, for example. Mm. Soldiers would carry portraits and pictures of her. She was this kind of ubiquitous figure in particularly in French culture. And like if we're talking about like early cinema, France is obviously like a huge part of that. By the time that you reach the end of the First World War, when cinema at that stage is what as a medium, maybe 25 years old at a push going back to its earliest days, uh, there had been no fewer than, I believe, six separate adaptations of the life story of Joan of Arc. And indeed, like, we will talk about it, like, over the course of this discussion, but it's worth knowing that this isn't even the only French movie <laughs> from 1928 that purports <laughs> to tell the story of Joan of Arc. We had kind of, like, a big, deep-impact Armageddon moment That's happening right. <laughs> uh, in, like, French cinema in 1928 regarding Joan of Arc. Um, so, like, again, very much a cultural icon, very much a cultural force. And a figure that was, you know, somewhat contested. There were debates about, like, what Joan of Arc represented, what she was supposed to be. And I mean, like, again, there was this discussion about, like, again, George Bernard Shaw, a Shaw in 1927, adapted, I think it was called St. Joan. Another, a play that was celebrating, again, the, you know, canonization of Joan of Arc. But you had this idea that Joan of Arc was this mythic figure, almost this fairy tale figure. There's uh, George Jean Nathan. Uh, writing about Shaw's St. Joan, saying, The story of Joan is perhaps not a story for the theatre of Shaw after all. It is a fairy tale, pure and simple, or it is nothing. An inspiring and lovely fairy tale for the drunken old philosophers who are the children of the world. It vanishes before the clear and searching light of dawn and day. And I think that's kind of important in understanding the context for this particular adaptation of the life of Joan of Arc, why it felt so radical at the time, why it was maybe in some senses a provocative adaptation of her life, because it feels like a film that is in some ways in conversation with that idea of Joan as this kind of mythic, larger-than-life figure, this fairy tale that you say, in terms of, like, grounding her. It was, at the time, somewhat controversial, even during its development cycle, uh, most obviously, Carl Theodore Dreyer, the director, is not French. He is Danish. Uh, he was brought in, I think, was it after Master of the House was a massive success. He was hired by, is it the Society Générale du Film, I think it is? Oh, my God, uh, I have to step in at this point for my usual role as you, you, a French speaker. <laughs> you are indeed, sorry. Société Générale du Film. Okay, let's go with SGF. How does that work for people? Fantastique. But yes, basically, he was brought in to work on this because he'd had a massive success with his Master of the House. And there was some pushback immediately in French nationalist circles at this idea of a foreigner coming in and making a movie that was about this icon of, like, French culture and French cinema. It was particularly, like, the a flames... Dane, no less. Sorry? A Dane, no less. Yeah, a Dane. No, 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 no one... Even a great Dane. Yeah, pe Ayo. people in... Including Irish people will never forget or forgive what the Danes did. Those Vikings that came <laughs> what to the, kill their king. What, did the French look at, at Dreyer and go, hmm, too soon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and all, also, all joking aside, like, sorry, well, yes, go ahead. There, well, also, I was just going to say, I mean, not only would nationalists have uh, objected to him, but also um, Joan had been canonized as a, a Catholic saint and uh, Dreyer was a Protestant stock. So between those two factors, yeah, there was definitely some pushback. Um, but And there were initial plans for Lillian Gish to star in the movie as well, an American. 
there were worse plans than that for it. I just probably best. <laughs> this might be best saved as an after script. Yes. After, well, I'll say it now anyway, but just to yes. show the kind of movie that it could have been. After this, after this film's initial release, it kind of disappeared without trace and was a box office flop, sad to say. Um, Warner Brothers wanted to produce a version in America of the story of Joan of Arc, and they offered it to Dreyer with the proviso that it would be the uh, it would be the uh, talkies debut of no less than Greta Garbo. Uh, thankfully, it, that plan did not work out. Smithers, look, Garbo's coming. Com- <laughs> <laughs> um, did they want to make it a comedy as well, uh, a musical comedy? Um, uh, Second explanation you, after the passion. Use the medium of like uh, talking cinema and like put some good music in there. I guess. Sorry, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, like we will talk about the film's reception and stuff like that. But the big note about it, um, and this is something I think I, you know, kind of throw over to to Max and to Phil, is that like when it was, obviously, the film was controversial when it was screened. Um, there was some reaction to it. We'll talk about it again, as as Phil kind of mentioned, but it was almost immediately lost. Uh, in I believe December nineteen twenty eight, so the year after it was completed. I believe the assemb- the labs where the film had been edited burnt down uh, and the stock footage was destroyed. This led to a situation where Dreyer, who again, and we'll talk maybe about like Dreyer's methodology, but like one of the things about him as a director is that he feels in some ways like a father of the modern idea of the auteur, the torture, the artist director. And a large part of that was down to him insisting on multiple takes uh, from actors and filming scenes over and over again. So he was actually able to, interestingly enough, go back and find like footage for all of the material that had been lost and to edit together a second cut of the movie based on like reels that he had rejected from the first cut. And in fact, you can tell whether you're watching like Dreyer's original version or the second version that he created by things like, for example, when a skull is tossed out of a grave, does it land properly or does it fall over? Mm. If it falls over... That's the second cut. That's the second take mm. or the second cut. There's a moment where, and we'll talk about this, where an arm is like cut open for bleeding, where they want to bleed an arm. If it's the director's original version, the blood just sprays out of that thing like nobody's business because that's the first take that they had. If he's using the second cut, it's like the blood oozes a little more gently because at that stage, the extras kind of done this a couple of times and it's really not flowing the way that you would expect it to. There's a lot of that that's going. That's not Hollywood magic. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just like lo- lo- losing blood as yeah. it's coming out like less quick now as they run out of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Again, we'll, we'll talk maybe about the particulars of that but it is interesting that that happens. And then even that second version, as Phil mentioned, is over time kind of lost to history. And again, there's that statistic about something like 75% of <laughs> well, silent films. When you say lost to history, the story of it is actually more bizarre and sadder. Yeah. Than yes, that. okay. So yeah. just go to, for it. Just fill it in. So as you say, uh, the uh, original print had been lost in this fire in a, in a lab in Berlin where the uh, director of photography had sent it because he preferred their methods to any French outlet that would, that would process it. That lab was so hot right now. Oh, God. Anyway. Okay. Um, Sorry. Uh, but after that, as you say, Dreyer and his editor went back and they attempted to salvage what they could based on alternate takes where they needed to be filled in. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing and I really feel bad for, for doing so, but... Um, that cut um, was actually lost in another fire 
in this now French lab in early 1929. So they had only just managed to reconstitute the film from what Wharton's, what wasn't uh, Dreyer's original intention, his original, uh, sh the shots that he wanted to use. And uh, that went up in flames as well. So attempting to find any cut of this, either secondary or the original cut, for a long time was, uh, it was taken to be a fool's errand. It wasn't until um, a French film historian by the name of Joseph-Marie de Luca uh, he proposed making a 16mm version from a surviving print that had been tracked down. Um, he came to Dreyer with that idea, but since Dreyer didn't own the rights, he had no say in it. It was owned by the uh, French film company Gaumont. And um, eventually what happened was, while he was proposing a 35mm print with uh, Gaumont, uh, Le Duc actually tracked down a copy of the second version of the film in their vaults in 1951. And they made some changes, cut out some footage, added a new soundtrack. Well, a, a different added soundtrack. voiceover introduction. Yes, um, a lot of changes like that that Dreyer obviously was not happy about. But again, he didn't own the rights, so he had absolutely no say in it. Wasn't Title it? cards with stained glass windows printed on them for no good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it seemed more stereotypical of what people would expect. But, and wasn't it like slowed down 50% too? Like it was the wrong frame yeah. rate and it was just like dirge-like? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I, I suppose it's because cinema had evolved so much in the intervening years they tried to make it as accessible for for the masses as possible to view. Oh, have, have you have you heard that quote from uh, Dreyer? Like I think, and, you know, sorry, I'll hand back now to Phil, but like Dreyer talking about the low Duca version uh, replied, and this is a direct quote from his letter on the matter. The editor has tried to make the film more accessible to the general public by appealing to the public's bad taste. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Phil. Uh, that's fantastic, but it does underscore Not the point. that the editor has bad taste. Yeah, no, he's doing <laughs> he's his job. Like, he he just understands people. Yeah, yeah, he gets it. Um, yeah. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> um, it, it, no, no, I mean, it, there you have it. I mean, it, what, but he... Dreyer didn't like what became of his film, but what could he do? I mean, he'd already salvaged it once with the help of his editor, Marguerite Poget, back in 29, and that went up in flames. So I, he was probably, he'd probably allowed himself enough of a stoic response to losing the film for so long that he was entitled to feel more than little umbrage at what had happened in this new version. But no other version was found or readily available. Until, until 1981, when a copy, a complete copy of the original version was finally tracked down in very strange circumstances in the Dykemark Mental Hospital in Oslo, Norway, where the then director of the hospital, a Dr. Arneson, had asked the director of the Palat Theatre in Copenhagen, where the film was originally showing, for a copy. He was an amateur historian. He had an interest in French history in particular. He had been researching uh, French Revolution and various other uh, timelines and had a particular interest in the story of Joan of Arc. And when the film was discovered back in 81, it was found still in its original wrapping. It had never been touched. It was as good as pristine. Yeah. So... I th personally, I believe the only, unlike the only non-marking, the only marking there from anybody but Dreyer was from the Danish like film censor's office, which was basically we have not touched this. Yeah, which is remarkable. 
and and personally, I think one of the reasons that the film has endured is because so long it was seen as a lost film that it was. I think people cherish it because we actually get to see it in its original version. It could have so easily been lost, except that one lucky guy was in the vault of this mental hospital in, uh, in the, on the outskirts of the Norwegian capital one day, found these untouched film reels and basically said to uh, the uh, the cultural uh, to, to the cultural heads in Norway, hey, you want this? And uh, we've been gifted with this since, and now we have it on Blu-ray editions a go-go, so we're never yep. losing it again. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that that's the thing, is that, like, it was on nitrate. So if that person who was not a film expert, who had found it in the vault of that psychiatric institution, had even tried to open the reel, it probably would have burnt up on contact with air. Mm. Like, it is the amount of luck that it requires to have the film that we have today, where he just kind of said, no, just send it off to the experts. And I think it took the experts, like, several months to even realize what they had, because mm. they were just like, we found a bunch of junk in a psychiatric institution. It's it's incredible. Um, but I wanted to ask, like, Max and, and Phil, like, you guys are, are big fans of this movie. You've talked about how it's, like, a formative influence for you. Have you ever watched, like, the other versions of it? Like, have you watched, say, the, you know, Selvage second version? Have you watched the Loduca version? Um, like, Max? Uh, so, the, I think they're, let's see, on the first Criterion DVD release, they had some clips of that that played as a special feature. And I dutifully watched that and decided there's no way I am going to watch the rest of this. It's, uh, I, I, well, and, and to be honest, I, I, okay, I get, I get very precious about, um, certain versions of silent films. Uh, and I don't know why it's silent films only cause I don't know. I, I, I don't have the same, um, feeling of, uh, I don't know, uh, anger over say the theatrical release of Blade Runner as I have over the second version of The Passion of Joan of Arc. Like, I, the, the theatrical release of Blade Runner with the Deckard common, like, spoken voiceover, voice, voiceover yeah, is um, a, a, a curio, and it's a, an object of some, uh, you know, laughability. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm not upset about it. Like, I'm, I'm upset about versions of silent movies that, like, either have the wrong music with them, which is paradoxical because, of course... The, you know, there wasn't an original score to, to be. Well, hold on, Darren, you want to jump in movies. here? Right, exactly. No, so, no. Go. So when I when when we talked about Sherlock Junior, I said, "Hey, listen, I know that the music that I watch this with, that I love, is by no means original. It was written you know, 10, 20 years ago. But this is my favorite score. Please watch it with this music. It's so much better that way." Uh, and uh, you know, and I and I get very, um, uh, you know, I have a certain amount of um, ardor about that um and so when when i'm watching the passion of joan of arc if it doesn't have voices of light with it i'm really upset and uh, uh i've watched it completely silent with no sound at all yeah it's a totally which different is Dreyer's experience. preferred version like Dreyer, Dreyer's argument is that there should be no accompaniment and i won't tell him he's wrong on that because it you you notice visual rhythm differently it's it, it's it's a very very good film that way nothing wrong with it but i've also seen it with a couple of other scores i even saw it live once with a with a guy with like playing with like electric viola and a small orchestra and like some synth tracks with it and i hated it it was one of my worst theatrical experiences ever because i thought that i don't know it just it seems spiritually miscalibrated 
and that's a very heavy phrase to use, um, especially in uh, the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, you know, you watch something like Luc Besson's uh, The Messenger, uh, which is his Joan of Arc film, and and you get the sense that he, uh, or at least I get the sense that there's there's almost this sense of um, uh, um, either pa- like patronizing paternalism from him that it's like ah well Joan was definitely trying to do the right thing but uh, ultimately she was a little misguided and I guess it's kind of sad that she got burnt up uh but blah 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 and you 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 come at it from and by the way if that's not your experience with that movie I I acknowledge that that's a very personal reaction uh it, and and there are plenty of other Joan of Arc movies where you get the sense that they they have a particular way of either beatifying her or desanctifying her or going in these other directions. What's amazing to me about Dreyer is that somehow you can walk into the Passion of Joan of Arc, Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc, and and see all of those different perspectives simultaneously. And I don't know how he did it artistically. And that's why this movie walks through time with me, where from my youth, when I was a you know very evangelical conservative Christian, and it meant one thing to me, to now when I am a non-theist and it means a totally different thing to me, to when I was in film school, to when I was a film professor, to now when I'm not even a film professor anymore, it keeps meaning different things to me and is and is able to to have I don't know those different perspectives. He he doesn't just have one take on Joan. Everybody comes to Joan with their own thing, right? The, the Joan is is a figure of reverence for, um, you know, French Catholics, of course. We've mentioned that already, but for Christians more generally. But she is also a hero, I guess, of uh, of, of women. She's a hero for youth. She's a hero for rebels. She's a hero for, for soldiers. And, and for, exactly. For soldiers, for war historians. She's an avatar of queer culture. She is a lot of things to a lot of different people. And what is most amazing to me is that this film doesn't just pick one of those things. Somehow, and I don't know how Dreyer did it, this is still the mystery of art for me. Somehow, um, she is able to be all of those things based on who you are walking into the movie. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe we just walked into the spoiler zone here, but that's that's what the movie <laughs> is to me. Um, um, and I'll have many other things to say about that too, but... <laughs> But yeah, and Max, I just want to like to go back to something you mentioned earlier about this idea of like being very precious about science films. It, it's fascinating that it's like the medium is so much looser from that period. Like it's so much more elastic. There's so, as you said, so many different versions. The fact, as you mentioned, that soundtrack is is something that is so subjective. Where like you, many of these movies exist outside of copyright and only exist in copyright with particular soundtracks right. on them after the fact. So you have these different versions. Like, is that something you think about as somebody who, like, we've had on talking obviously about Sherlock Jr. and stuff? Is that like the amount, the fact that the silent era is in some ways like less fixed than what came afterwards. Well, that's actually one of the things that I, that I think allows the silent era to travel through time and find new audiences differently than say the early sound era or frankly, any other era of cinema sense. When you try to go back and add something or alter something to a film made after the silent era, it, 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 it inevitably strikes me as a, 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 a fool's errand, a disastrous enterprise. So there was that moment when when they re-released... Uh, okay, so the first DVD release of Vertigo, 
Do you remember this? The first DVD release of, Ver or maybe the second DVD release of Vertigo, they decided to go back in and re-foley all the sound effects on it. And so, <laughs> yeah, this is the copy I have of Vertigo. And so you play it through a nice sound system and you hear the original Bernard Herrmann score with its, I don't want to say tinniness, but just 1958 recording quality. And then when, when uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart takes a running jump onto the roof, you hear, and it's like a, like a big bass thump, new Foley. And I'm like, screw this. No, it, that's wrong. These sounds don't go together. Don't do that. Uh, you, you've ruined it. And of course, you know, when Ted Turner comes along and decides to colorize a film, colorize, you know, that's... Yeah. That's a disaster. But with a silent movie, since there, in most cases anyway, wasn't a director-approved fixed score for it, people can come along and it becomes this this cultural uh, potlatch, this stone soup where you can add your own thing to it. And Richard Einhorn comes along and he writes some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard uh, for this movie and takes it to a place where maybe Dreyer didn't want it that way, but ultimately Dreyer doesn't have a say over that because he didn't choose a score to go with it. <laughs> and so we get to reinvent it um, while at the same time not touching a frame. And I kind of love that, that there's this collaboration um, across time. And who knows, maybe 50 years from now, there'll be another great score for it. Or maybe there'll be another great score for Sherlock Jr. or or any other silent film um, that, that changes how people can... Uh, relate to it anyway and, and, and phil no, fan, like fantastic um and and phil what about yourself like in your relationship to the other versions have you seen uh the loduca version uh do you have a preferred soundtrack since this is a question we're getting on to now i kind of had this down to later but let's talk about uh, the sorry that's fine um <laughs> no not at all i'm all for it uh, hey much like uh this film which came at a certain point in the evolution of film grammar we might as well play with the grammar of the show so why not <laughs> um, uh, I have never watched another version bar the original and simply because uh, you can call me a dreadful auteurist if you want but it's Dreyer's version and yeah something like the soundtrack can be changed since as you've pointed out there isn't a set soundtrack he approved but whenever else we can get what he considered his uh, his preferred version I'm, I think for as well to take that um, the other versions, I mean, if he's, if we're looking at cuts and takes that aren't his, or what he preferred, then we're not necessarily getting an ideal version. It's not the director's vision, at least not as he intended. And as for the Leduca version, I mean, the fact that we have the original version now kind of renders the Leduca version a curio at best and perhaps pointless, utterly pointless at worst. Um, but I just haven't had the, haven't taken the time to watch it, even though it's supposed to be shorter. And I I might, but I have no real inclination because the finished product that we do have, the original version, is there and it is what it is and it's magnificent. And I just haven't found any point to watching any other. Uh, again, and that might sound I, I that might sound quite crass of me, but I've only watched like two cuts of Blade Runner and I'm sticking with the two. If I, if I, oh, go ahead. Hold on. Andrew, Andrew needs to talk. Go for it. No, no. I, I was wondering, and are, and does that include Voices of Light, Phil, or is it a silent, silent movie? Um, the the version that you watch. I have never actually watched the Voices of Light version. I must confess. 
Okay. So it's, it's fact, with, Max is like, with, what are you doing with, on the podcast? And in fact, and in no, fact this is with, great. With, without this a soundtrack? Uh, yeah, today else? I watched it completely silent. Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. And wow. it's absolutely mesmerizing. It yeah, lets it me as much of a teary mess as it did the first few times I watched yeah. it. It's a film that has a staggering emotional resonance, I think, regardless of what soundtrack you put it with. I'm sure... Yeah. The other versions have their own certain amount of power, but when I get what I get from the original cut, I just don't see much point in potentially diluting it or I won't say weakening it, but you know, it's not what was intended by the director and I'm just going to defer to his vision on it and we have it. So I'm sticking with that and it works for me on quite a number of levels. So as reductions of my as it might sound, why bother? It's the congregation of the doctrine of the faith. Of, well, precisely. Of, um, We're in yeah. conclave and I vote you... for the original. <laughs> but, like, like, the, the other one is heresy. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I mean, to, to get a sense of like how elastic all of this is, where obviously like after the silent era, you have like standardized cuts. You've got like again, even what you have mastered and remastered versions of films. You have like locked versions of films that exist in archives as like fixed objects. Like again, even to, to, to forgetting the argument that we're having about like cutting forget the argument that we're having about soundtrack forget the argument that we're having about like the second edition or the director's second edition or whatever about that which are all their own versions of this film there's an ongoing debate in the film community about whether or not this film is best watched at 20 frames per second <laughs> or 24 frames per second i watched it because again today <laughs> but yeah that's the thing is that like as, as i'm sure max will tell you it's in the silent era many of these movies were hand cranked they were designed to be watched at somewhere between 16 and 24 frames per second with no way of having a, ma a machine that would standardize the process. So in order to replicate the experience of what you felt in a cinema, they say the average is 20. Instead of being 16 or 24, the average is 20. Um, so that's the way that you should watch it. And then like traditional film people are like, a film is 24 frames per second. That's what it's meant to be. Watch it at that speed as well. I, I imagine in old... And uh, uh, film theaters that there could just be a guy who is a limited repertoire. So like every movie is the entertainer. There were there were books of, of, of musical cues that the that the organist or the pianist oh, wow. would flip through yeah. as like uh, just I mean, like basically your your. Um, you know what a jazz artist would call a fake book where you've got your chords and you've got your little motifs as, as reference. Um, and you can sort of assemble a score on the fly more or less. Yeah. Um, I don't want Andrew to feel left out of this conversation. So uh, no, no. I'm kind of hoping um, he's going to jump in and tell us what his preferred cut of RoboCop is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but that, that is, that is the thing when myself and Andrew, the theatrical version is the answer. It's the yeah. answer. Um, I'm like, yeah, when myself and Andrew watched this today, uh, we watched it via Criterion streaming app because, again, there are so many versions of this. And I, we were watching it via the app and it did. The bit buffer... where the blood spurts out, by the way, is <laughs> the obligatory <laughs> Robocop, Robocop reference. reference. <laughs> yeah, we got it. Because they put a spike <laughs> yeah. into an artery. Yeah. Um, just like. Yeah, yeah. Just, 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 just like the data access spike. Yeah. Uh, in Robo. Exactly in like that. Exactly, exactly like that. The original working um, title yeah. of which was originally The Passion of Alex Murphy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, it's another passion movie. Wait a minute. Are movies about, yeah, Phil, are you Jesus, serious? French Jesus. 
No, of course I'm not serious. <laughs> I, there, there's so much Jesus imagery in RoboCop yeah, yeah, that I was I almost willing to be convinced of that. <laughs> if Zack Snyder yeah. directed it, it would have been called that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like so, so, but so when we watched it today, I have this on Blu-ray. And I was like, we're watching this on Criterion. And Andrew's like, why are we watching this on a streaming service? Mm. And I was like, because I've watched both cuts on the on the Blu-ray. And it is the Eureka Masters of Cinema version. So, like, they have, like, a stripped-down piano accompaniment from Japanese composer Mai Yanshita. And I apologize for that on the 20 frames per second version. And they have, like, a kind of an orchestral version from Lauren Connors on the 24. And I was like, I was not really impressed with either of those soundtracks. I thought, the, you know, we'll get into how I feel about the movie. But I was like... I had heard so much about the Richard Einhorn Visions of Light score um, that Max mentioned that I was like, I'm going to watch off the Criterion app because I don't have the Criterion Blu-ray. We're going to put it on. We're going to watch the Richard Einhorn version. So, Andrew, like, what is your preferred version of The Passion of Joan of Arc? <laughs> it's uh, like, we, we, yeah, uh, uh, having not listened to any other version, um, I guess this one by default Although I am um, interested in Phil's pitch, um, I think just be- because of how visually striking it is, it, it might be worth um, watching without a soundtrack. Having said that, I feel like I am <laughs> the token Philistine here. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think like... It's probably like I was at a party last night, so I was possibly like a little bit tired and they did have like an hour long nap afterwards. But I may have also had, and I'm very sorry, a a little short kind of just resting my eyes at some moment um, in it. This is why we have guests. This is why we have guests, because we we recorded... um, 2000 was uh, Space Odyssey, where I was like... No, no, I was going to say uh, 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 Stalker, like Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, and we were like... We can't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> we we have to have a guest. So then when we did when we did four hundred blows, which was actually like a very entertaining kind of like um you know, very accessible uh, movie mm-hmm. and a delight, uh, we had Phil on because we, we had one look at it and thought like, Oh, it's gonna be very kind of, you know, art house and yeah. um, And neither of us is an expert of in us, French cinema. Yeah, we'll we'll have nothing to say about it. <laughs> and we probably won't I'm get being it. Oversold but, here. <laughs> Well, you are the reason we have guests. I think you were, were you our first guest? Uh, possibly. So. Yeah. But if I wasn't, I'd still recommend to anybody who's still listening to us at this point to actually go back and listen to the episode of 400 Blows. It's uh, it's still a great movie. It's an entertaining episode. And uh, I think it clocks in at just around an hour. How did we manage that? <laughs> Those were the days. Those were, God be with the days. Um so oh. yeah, did, I, I don't know if I could, um, if, if if that would help me stay awake i i i think i i think i was also trying to maybe do a little bit of research but um i i yeah i i i found it difficult to kind of um look andrew andrew uh, the problem is you set your set your uh your limits too high remember you recorded (laughs) an episode the morning after your stag do after that you're getting away with nothing (laughs) this is true um, but yes, so uh, so yes, this is your preferred cut. <laughs> <laughs> preferred cut yeah. I like I I'd, I'd like to watch the version where I stay awake. Um, no but, disrespect um, to the movie, of course. But it's no, it, no disrespect to the movie. Like 
Uh, Space Odyssey 2001 is yes. like an uh, like an inarguably kind of like a masterpiece of 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 film, but I've never been able to stay awake yes. for the whole thing, and I don't fall asleep watching movies generally. Like the- no, I I, re- I was I remember that discussion where I was like, so what do you think of it? It's like, well, I've had a little nap in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. And I, I was just, sitting beside him. Yeah. <laughs> Max um, and I were kind of sat here like, what am I dealing with? All right, I'm going to take... Part of me that wants to forgive that. I mean, I get where you're coming from. On the one, I'm like one of the sympathetic judges here. Like, yeah, you are committing sacrilege, but I'm like, yeah, I get you. We have, well, Phil was walked we, out of the podcast we, and never seen again. We, we have... We, <laughs> and Max learned to stay in his place. We feel mercy for you. We We have compassion for you. Um, yeah, no, I, and it's not even that, it's not a very long movie either. So it, it, no, it, it, thank you for, for, for giving me absolution, whether I deserve it in, or not. In Max, what? in Max terms though, it's two Sherlock juniors. Uh, so <laughs> next, <laughs> right. next time I'm on, we'll do two Passion of Joan of Arc. So I'll, I'll keep doubling the running time of the movie that I talk about. And we have so many cuts to choose from. You absolutely yeah. could. Uh, I, I think mean, yes, Darren one of really your wants to. Was ben Hur, I think. Yeah, yeah, you suggested exactly. doing Ben Hur. Right? I I did say yes to doing Ben Hur. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I did. Um, and who knows? We'll we'll fold in the 1925 version while we're at it. Why not? Um, oh, fun boys night in. Go on. Exactly, Fred Niblo for the win. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think Darren really wants to ask us three questions. So I'm going to let him do that. I think we better. No, well, okay, if, if nobody else. <laughs> Um, but what I was going to say, uh, just very quickly, it is worth noting, we'll talk about, like, the stylistic technique, the film grammar, the language of this. One of the criticisms of, like, the choice of how Dreyer chose to film the movie, and we'll talk about it in the spoiler zone, is that, like, it uses cinematic language that exhausts the audience. Like, one of the big knocks against, like, going all in on close-ups, like Dreyer does over the course of the movie, from, like, film critics at the time, from film theorists at the time, was that it does exhaust the audience. The audience is conditioned to expect close-ups in a silent movie, like, towards the climax of the action. And so if you do that over the course of an 80-minute movie, you do wear the audience down, and you do exhaust them. So I think, Andrew, you are maybe... Maybe validation of that critical theory, that, that argument against <laughs> Dreyer's cinematic technique here. Absolutely. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we get into the, into the spoiler <laughs> zone. So, Phil, three questions to get us started. Phil, yes. do you think Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, yes, and I probably say that more emphatically than any film you've asked me that about. Even more so than, say, The Godfather. It's a foundational text of cinema, and I think it must be there. Would you care to elaborate on that? Then I guess this is maybe where we talk about the film technique and stuff, but when you say a foundational text. Okay, so when it came out, 1928, um, we're at the time when the silence were on the way out because talkies had just come in the year before, and they took off like wildfire. (laughs) Who saw that coming? I mean, come on. But... This is, I think the, uh, I think it's like an apex, an apex of silent filmmaking. Like yeah, I think, and I mean I'm open to being contradicted on this if it sounds like, if if it sounds hyperbolic. But I think uh, Chris Marker, who of course uh, directed Le Jeté, he said of the film that it's the sum of all the prestiges of the silent cinema and all its possibilities. Of expression, it's the culmination of the silent film as a form, and I think if this was to be um, 
a magnum opus of silent filmmaking. If that's what we're going to consider it, absolutely. Like, it's, I mean, it's telling a story that people are familiar with, but it tells it in ways that are so dramatic and emotional and awe-inspiring and all-encompassing that the fact that it can draw that out of you without without sound, as Dreyer intended, is remarkable. It's a miraculous film in a lot of ways. And the fact that a film that is almost 100 years old can still have that effect and will go on to have that effect, uh, no matter how what way you look at it, what version you use to to um, to experience it. Um, I mean, that's a staying power that uh, has to be recognised. And uh, yeah, I mean, it I, it doesn't get any better than this in terms of silent filmmaking for me, anyway. Not that I will claim to be an expert on on it in any sense, and certainly not compared to our other guests. But I stand by my my, my comments. Come at me, bros. I mean. We we <laughs> come at me talky bros hashtag talky bros. Um, what I thought they I thought you never you never shows entendu. That's that's we, a jazz ta- singer joke, son. Oh, you haven't heard talk- nothing yet. Got it. Took me a second. <laughs> <laughs> when we were talking about when Andrew and I were talking about like F. W. Renau's uh, Sunrise, which is another film from this period of transition, where mm. silent film is kind of on the way out, being replaced by talkies and. You know, we, we kind of alluded to it. The film was maybe not a massive commercial success. And one of the big arguments for like Joan, uh, the Pasha of Joan of Arc not being a commercial success outside of being a one of two competing Joan of Arc movies that year. Uh, B, like having this French nationalist press narrative against it. C, which we'll talk about in the spoiler zone, the actual content of the movie yeah. um, was, was the argument that... Uh, like audiences just didn't want to see silent films anymore. Like yeah. there was an argument that it was just too late. It had arrived. Like nobody wanted to go and see a silent movie. Because Sunrise doesn't suffer from any of those problems. It's very sort of you know, um, I guess accessible, and it doesn't really create any great um, controversy or kind of contention over it. Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing is more that like I was going to say was like the the argument that I remember making from like is it Rudolf Arnheim who was like a German film critic. And he, he said the same thing about Sunrise, which was the idea that silent film was not ripe for replacement. It had lost none of its fruitfulness, but only its profitability. Yeah. And like it, and I think we talk about, we talk about Sunrise, how like we will make black and white movies now. Like even though color exists, even though color is like the dominant form, we will still make movies in black and white for the sake of making them in black and white. You know, even something like say, you know, Francis Hall is in black and white. Remember, wait, is it Francis Hall in black and white? I yes, think it is. But but like you, you, we will make these movies in black and white. Roma, for example, could just as easily have been shot in color. But we treat black and white as an aesthetic that we choose. We don't do that with silent films. We Once- do it with TV shows as well, still. Like stuff, stuff like Better Call Saul and WandaVision. Oh, we'll use black and white, yeah. like in in as part of their cinematic language. But even like we make whole films. Like there's a film that you'll buy a ticket to and you'll watch for like two hours in black and white, and you know it'll be nominated for best picture. You know there was a time when Oppenheimer looked like it was going to be released entirely in black and white, for example. And I think it's fascinating that we don't do that with silent films. Silent film is just an art form that is completely gone once talkies existed. It was like we have no reason to do it outside of something like the artist, which is explicitly to reference doing it. It's just it's just odd that there's it it feels like it's, it's a not, former. It's it's strange as well because the artist did so well. Yeah, 
uh, yeah. like in terms of awards, in terms of finances. Yeah. Like well, Hollywood likes movies stuff. about Hollywood. I mean, it was always in with a good chance. Um, but sorry, that's a pivot to talking to our, our kind of our silent film expert on the podcast. But like Max, to answer the question, like, do you think this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? And like, what do you think about that like transition from silent to talkies and where this falls kind of on that spectrum? You, you have to answer the question to the medium of silent movies. <laughs> title cards. Title cards only. Yeah. Oh, title what, a pity, what a pity we're dealing in an audio, an audio medium. Oh, well. Um, I want to second everything that Phil said, and I would like to, um, make it even more rapturous. Uh, I, (laughs) I can't imagine film history without this movie. And while there are other things that silent cinema achieved, there are, you know, there are the Napoleons, there are the Keatons, there are the, there's the Chaplins, you know, there, there are things like a cottage on Dartmoor. There are things like, um... Many Montan, uh, there's L'Argent, there's a bunch of, you know, great movies that achieve different things from what uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc achieved. Uh, if we've got to pick one, that's the one I pick too. And it, there's not even really a close second, um, you know, un- unless we, unless we just decide that we, that we, that we want, that we want the silent era to be represented by a comedy which is perfectly fine. I'm not against that. I have my comedies that I would pick for that. Sherlock Jr. would be among them. Uh, the General would be among them, uh, you know, and so on. But um, but frankly, I didn't think there'd be quite so many jokes in today's episode. I was expecting a somewhat drier conversation. Hey. Uh, and, hey. and uh, you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're going to acknowledge that film can be an art form, and it can be about very serious things, and that maybe when you walk away from it, you should be walking away silently or weeping a little bit. Um, This is, yeah, this is one of the heights that cinema ever achieved. Um, And one of the reasons why it's actually, I think, fair to still use the word cinema when we're talking about the moving pictures. Uh, It's, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, and again, I, I can never quite justify why I walk away with what I walk away with. If other people don't see it, I, I feel bad for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is this is incredible. That feels like a segue for me to ask Andrew the question. Please, <laughs> please. Yeah, no, um, I, um, I, 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 I don't disagree. I, I, I think the reasons that I didn't connect with it don't don't have to do with. Um, uh, the movie itself but more kind of maybe um uh, mistaken kind of genre expectations maybe that's fair um for for to to for for i guess something that's maybe ostensibly an historical movie and also a a kind of a courtroom movie yes. it's very kind of uh, uh, sparse on exposition and dialogue obviously yes. it's a it's a um it's a silent movie and they tend to be um uh but but I, I i felt like i wanted to have more of an idea of what was going on at all times and um it's not that kind of movie it's more um i think what max was referring to which is kind of like a a a thoughtful spiritual kind of profound movie that kind of um makes this impression on you and leaves you kind of uh, uh thinking or or, or or weeping kind of um a, a afterwards so i think if you go into it with the right frame of mind 
um, it it certainly has a a, a a right to be there. I mean, like, yeah, not not to talk too much about the movie, but I think like part of what makes it so fascinating as an object is is the fact that it plays against like all of the expectations and internal logic that you expect a story like this to have, where you point out, like, it's it's not a spoiler. The starting premise of this movie is that you, you join Joan of Arc at the start of her trial with no account of her history or her battles. Now, yeah. to be fair, part of that is the film assumes it's 1928. Uh, Joan of Arc is the hottest subject uh, in, like, cinema in the world. It kind of figures you can pick up and go along with it. But I think there is something interesting in just kind of like drawing an audience who's intimately familiar with the 100 years war. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, But like also, as you mentioned, the fact that it is like it's a courtroom drama. And I know we're coming at this from like the perspective of like 2023. But like and like Tolkien's existing, but like legal dramas are inherently Tolkien as well. Sorry. And an historical drama as well. Like this, this isn't Wolf Hall. Yeah. Um. And 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 nor nor is this um a <laughs> the chimes uh, at midnight or yeah anything. yeah like, it's not a Grisham. Yeah. <laughs> well, like that that's the thing. It yeah. comes in these genres that we now expect to be so heavily talky that's and it. so expect to be so dialogue driven and expect to be so like conversation and even like in terms of like title cards and stuff like that. Or it, clever, I guess, is the 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 kind of word that you might use for like you you know, you know where where it comes to a certain point in these sorts of kind of movies where you're like, ah. I, I get it. It all comes together. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even in terms of like, we look at like courtroom dramas and we think like stage shows, like they're, they're things that we're used to seeing in theater. They're things that we think of like Aaron Sorkin writing A Few Good Men, yeah. that like, ex- rat that that exchange. So to make a, a movie like that, that is obviously, obviously it's a silent film as we've talked about, but it is so pared down. Yeah. Like, even in terms of, like, title cards, there's, you know, not that much exposition that's provided via title card. The movie just counts on, like, these intense close-ups on faces. I love that it kind of plays against these expectations. And we'll talk about its production as well. But, like, Dreyer is, like, you mentioned it's a historical drama. You expect that, like, it's going to be big. It's going to, like, be pageanty. You're going to have people wearing costumes. You're going to have, like, big sets. And obviously, they do have big sets um was it herman warm the yeah. designer who worked on the cabinet of dr Calieri. same guy um, he yep he built this set and most of these models are preserved in the danish film archives apparently denmark very good at preserving film uh you know germany and uh france not so much but it's like they have like all the models preserved and you can visit them but this this was like a set that was gigantic that you could walk around in that had this impressive courtyard they had all of these extras and i remember like reading that like Dreyer's talked about how when he made the film, he was left alone. He got to make the film that he wanted to make. There was nobody leaning over him. This movie cost more uh, than The Marvelous Life of Joan of Arc, the competing Joan of Arc release in, like, 1928. And that movie features, like, battlefield scenes and, like, lots of set changes and lots of crowd scenes. Uh, This somehow cost more than that. And very famously, when the producers, when the uh, SGF saw this movie... They were like, what the hell have you done? How have you, like, built us to make this gigantic, expansive set, cast all of these actors, dress them in these, like, costumes, and not shown any of that spectacle on screen? You're shooting it entirely in close-ups, and this somehow costs more than the big two-hour epic blockbuster with all of the battle scenes in it. And it and I think was that's... the right artistic choice through and through in every possible respect. <laughs> and that was it was Dreyer's method throughout his career that before he shot Ordette, um, he spent two weeks uh, walking around the way that they had dressed the set for this house and removing objects 
just taking stuff away. I'm like, nope, we don't need that knife. We don't need that spoon. We don't need that pot holder and just taking stuff away until there's almost nothing left. But what is left is a spiritual space, which is exactly what Gilles Deleuze talks about in in Cinema One, because I got to bring in the film studies a little bit. Hey. Uh, exactly what Gilles Deleuze talks about in Cinema One, where he says when you when you compress it all the way down to the flatness of the close up, somehow that uh, permits an opening un- unto like fourth and fifth and sixth spiritual dimensions that wouldn't have been available if you'd shot it any other way. Um, and I and I know I'm 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 bastardizing to lose a little bit there, uh, but uh, but he he definitely saw the 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 spiritual necessity for the close up, and 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 th- and thank goodness Dreyer took so much out of this movie because you don't need the Joan of Arc backstory, you don't need all the flashbacks, you don't need the battles, and if anything, every other Joan of Arc movie suffers from putting those things in, mm. and uh, if anything. And and every Joan of Arc movie made after this one is in its shadow, too. And it's it's almost like, uh, you know, you have one great song and a whole bunch of DJs come by and are like, I'm going to do my mixtape or I'm going to do my variations on this theme. And they all add in some stuff that just isn't needed or they take out stuff that should have been there. And I and I mean this for the Preminger. I mean this for the two different um uh, Ingrid Bergman, Joan of Arcs. I mean this for even the even the insertion of Joan of Arc into Godard, where, where she shows up in Vivre Sa Vie, and then where the lines uh, about the great victory and the martyrdom show up in Notre Musique. And I mean, there are bits of the Passion of Joan of Arc that show up throughout Godard's career. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Rivette's like five, six hour long thing that he did. Uh, I'm talking about all of them. They all just shove other stuff in there that isn't needed. There is a there is a there is a spiritual clarity that somehow emerges from this material minimalism. And when you have these, I don't know, you just see you just see that like a little bit of a chair, a little bit of a window, a little bit of an archway, and somehow it, it it's set in this mythic past that is already the past of the past of the past. So the movie will never age. Because it already has all these layers of past on it. It's not a curio from 1928. It's a curio from somehow a time that never existed. And uh, sorry, I got to stop. This it's it's so good. It's just so good. So that answers no, I, the first question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Darren hasn't yeah, answered so the first question. Yet. That's true. He hasn't. And Darren. my answer is, is very. My answer is very obviously yes. Um, I think for all the. Re- all the, all the reasons that I outlined there, which is the idea that it is so counterintuitive. And in, in its own way, I would argue, becomes this thing that is pure cinema. I mean, obviously, in terms of craft and technique, it's innovative use of close-ups, how that changes the cinematic grammar. Like, it is impossible to overstate uh, how much that changes the language of, like, visual media and visual storytelling. Uh, even when you're watching that today, right, you are watching that from a perspective of somebody who's grown up in the era of television. And in television, which is a very dialogue-driven medium, and which historically uh, was, like, you know, based on the assumption that you didn't know what size screen a viewer was watching on at home, and didn't know what the quality of their signal would be, that is a very close-up driven medium. So where you have characters delivering lines, they do so in close-ups. In cinema, historically, and like even through the 1950s, it was the medium of the wide shot. It was the medium of the establishing shot. It was scale. It was spectacle. And Joan of Arc just basically boils that down and says, no, perhaps the greatest single special effect that you can render on screen is a human face. 
uh, and getting in that, like the complexity of the human spirit, the human soul, the human journey, and conveying through that something that exists beyond language. Because, and again, not to play my hand and get into the whole spoiler zone thing, I think like one of the things that this movie is maybe about conceptually and what makes it like such a great monument of film is that it is in many ways about the limits of language, the limits of words, the idea that words are sometimes not enough to express ideas, concepts, and visions. And sometimes you need more than that. And that's like an argument for cinema as an art form um, to circle back around to the argument that Max already made. So I think from my point of view, I would say yes. Yes, unequivocally, it belongs on a list if you're making that. And just generally, I think we talked about before, like, I don't think the silent era is fairly or properly represented on here. Um, I think, like, Chaplin is well represented on here. There are a couple of Keatons on here. But, like, there aren't that many dramas on there. There's not a lot of German expressionism on there, for example. And I think that, yeah, uh, I would be, as a rule, reluctant to remove any silent film from the list under any circumstances. But in this case, I think there is a solid argument for it, like, being there. And it kind of, like, being something that is non-negotiable on the list, um, at least for me. It's very boring answer to that question. Non-negotiable. I com- completely agree. <laughs> I've uh, heard that. Um, oh, and please, we're, I can't wait to get into this question of language and what can be expressed and what can't be expressed. Because, the, yeah, that, that very notion of ineffability and inexpressibility is so dear to me in every different way that I return to this film. I find myself... myself Myself, maybe myself, maybe maybe I have different <laughs> selves. Maybe I'm I am many. I am a multitude. Uh, I I find myself confronted by the limitations of description and of uh, uh, and of translating emotional or even dare I say spiritual states into words. Uh, you know, rendering things describable. This film is always confronting that. And who knows? Maybe we found our only good sales pitch so far to people who haven't seen this. Which is uh, you're 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 not going to run into too many other films that are going to confront you emotionally that way and 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 render your experience indescribable. I'm not saying it'll definitely happen with this one because we do have Andrew in the room, uh, but uh, <laughs> but for a lot of people, that's the experience they take away from this, and you certainly wouldn't want to forfeit the opportunity to have that experience in your life. Um. And, and Phil, then, would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? Uh, yes, uh, probably right in the top 10. Um, because uh, Despite only having seen it six times? Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a lot for most people there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know people who are top of me in my place. <laughs> how many times have you seen Cats? There. I choose not to answer that question, <laughs> Phil. I know people who've watched Top Gun Maverick at least ten times, so I'm going to claim that this can be a favorite of mine, however many or however few times uh, as I like, um, because um, because I'm a hopelessly empathetic person. Uh, the emotional reaction it gets from me every time it floors me because I think anytime I might sit down to watch it, and particularly today when I had to go in with perhaps a bit more of an analytical mindset to it and try to appraise it critically, um, I'm still floored and I'm still uh, crying at various points because uh, whatever it's trying to say and however anybody else might choose to interpret it, but it gets to me in a profound way. And any film that manages to do that, especially in a filmic language that, as we've discussed, so many might see as passe, um, 
the fact that it still has that power is something that um, I respond to very deeply. And for that reason, it's it's a very personal choice, but I absolutely have to have that as something like that in my top 10 and it's there and it knocks me out every single time. And I would hope that anybody who does choose to watch it after this, Lord love you, but you may get that reaction. And if you do, um, we just hope you'll remember us fondly in your will. Uh, and <laughs> is that, was that a Patreon pitch? Um, but, I don't have um, a Patreon, but I, you know, I'm consi- <laughs> I consider it. But uh, Max, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250 favorite movies? And I'm going to hedge here and say how high. Uh, so it definitely <laughs> is. And I think you actually already know the answer to that, Darren, if you remember our Sherlock Jr. episode. Uh, it's my we did num- a lot of episodes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> it's my number one. Sorry. Hey, hey, nice. Yep. And it has been for about 15 years. Uh, it is a memorial. Jeez, we should know your guests, Darren. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's this is this is this is why I was so happy to come on today, but also to say that uh, that, that I'll, I'll always there's um oh, hold on I actually grabbed this quote before here it is Renato Rosaldo I was going to forget the author's name um, anthropologist said do do people always in fact describe most thickly what matters most to them uh, I I think that's that's my experience with this he's talking about how uh he and his wife spent some time with headhunters somewhere and to a headhunter it makes perfect sense why chopping off someone's head might might be a, a way to um uh, expel grief and deal with anger and rage and the three things just naturally go together obviously how um, don't they for everybody uh but it's you know completely inexplicable to somebody who's not in that culture and there is a certain cocktail of grief and anger and nostalgia that for me filters through this film that I'll never quite be able to explain. But I will say that it is a memorial to a lot of things that I once believed and a reminder of a lot of things that I just wish weren't true about humans, but are. Uh, And it knocks me out every time. And I'm really glad the movie's not currently playing right now while I'm trying to talk about it because uh, it would not be possible. Can somebody please give Max a hug? I'm, I'm begging you. He needs one. Yeah. I uh, Thank you, Max. That's actually, that's incredible. Uh, that is legitimately incredible. Thank you. Um, Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal too? I I, I feel terrible following that. Um, like, I, I um, it's certainly a movie that I will try to revisit. At the moment, it do- I, I, it would be disingenuous of me to say um, that it does. I'd be one of those people, kind of, you know, pretending to 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 to, to enjoy something. Um, um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, um, it, 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 it wouldn't. And I think I mentioned why, just that it, 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 it didn't. Um. It yeah. That it didn't just keep me um uh, engaged. I suppose maybe I was expecting something else. Um, but um, I hope that revisiting this, um, uh, I'll be able to appreciate it properly. I guess, but no, unfortunately. Not. Um, 
For myself, I think maybe, probably. Um, I'm, I'm always kind of hesitant about this question because it's the answer is always films that I have this intense emotional kind of connection to, and I don't know that I have this yet. I saw this years ago, and I, I rewatched it very intensely this week because I watched it at like 20 frames a second, 24 frames a second, the the uh, Loduka version, and I watched the, the Einhorn score today. So I feel like I've maybe been oversaturated with you, Joan of Arc. You've either watched it once or five times. <laughs> <laughs> that, is the, yeah, that is the question. When I, when I watched it today, I, I hadn't seen it in probably five years. Uh, because there was a time in my life where I was, you know, watching it bi-monthly probably. And I was, there were friends that I would find and show it to them. And, you know, had a, had a terrible experience once showing it to a class who just totally didn't get it. And never again. I just declared I'm never showing this to a class again. Uh, I can't deal with it emotionally that they don't get it. Or that, you know, maybe two of them get it, but the rest of them don't get it. This was a uh, film studies class, presumably, right? Yes, of course. Like of course. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, how? I mean, <sighs> children today, I despair. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And and who knows? Maybe it was just because I I needed them to see so much more in it or I needed them to see it the way that I saw it, which is mm. not a way that one should insist upon experiencing art. Um, I'm older <laughs> and wiser now. And so, you know, if 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 it came back around again to uh, present this to a class, I wouldn't go about it the same way uh, at all. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't insist upon those things. Um, I might actually say that this is this was the last movie that I was ever uh, a total fan of. And by total fan, I mean to say that I crave any positive description of this movie, any words of praise, <laughs> and I absolutely reject any negative syllable against it. That doesn't mean that I'm mad at Andrew or Darren. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean wait, that. Wait, what? Why am I getting drawn into this? Well, because you didn't say it yeah, was, you know, in your top ten. Uh, no, I'm, 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 and then, and, and to be to be clear, I'm not. Just that. No, I know, I, I know. I will only tolerate glory for this movie, and even secondary <laughs> descriptions of it um, have have a, a certain perfection of poetry sometimes. Like, I went back and I read Morden Hall's New York Times review yes. of this movie, and it's great! Who knew he could be a poet? It's great! <laughs> and it, and it you know, and it made me, and it made me feel a different shading of, the, of these uh, emotions all over again. Um, and, uh, you do, know, do you want to read the, the Morden Toll quote there? Actually, if oh, you have it to hand, what I, the... I was going to quote it later, but oh, it's, well, it's, it's which, a great line. which bit were you going to quote? I do, it's, it's a long, oh, okay, let, let's 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 quote rival Morden Hall bits. All okay, right, well, so here we go. go first and pick your... Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay, All right. okay, um. Uh, actually, Andrew's like, know, this is the most exciting podcast I've ever been on. Okay, I'm no, actually, you, you you go ahead and quote your bit. And I, want, I just have to okay. know. You start. Okay, all right. Film all right. critics handshake. Is do, do your Morden bit. Yeah, do, do, everybody has a Morden. Everyone shake, has right? one, yeah. Okay, yeah. here. Okay. As a film work of art, this takes precedence over anything that has so far been produced. It makes worthy pictures of the past look like tinsel shams. It fills one with such intense admiration that other pictures appear but trivial in comparison. When one leaves the theatre, the face of that peasant girl with all its soulfulness appears to leap from one to another in a throng. On leaving this little theatre is not of the scenes or the camera work that one thinks, but of the touching peasant countenance of Mademoiselle Falconetti, who to play this part suffered her luxuriant hair to shorn like the felons of old uh yeah uh, you're the, my line continues on your line there's a bit of overlap oh, okay there, sorry. But yeah 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 uh 
you're you had part of mine, but it's also for me. And this will this is spoiler zone. This is spoiler zone content, so I won't say it yet. But the like okay. the the last we're almost bit, there. We're almost there. The last bit of his review is basically just a poetic um, retelling of the end of the movie. Like he's moved out of the land of film critic and just, I have to tell you what I saw on the screen. Uh, and, and, and then that's, that in itself is, is telling. So I'll wait till we get to the spoiler zone, but just the way he describes the last bit of the movie is unbelievable. Uh, you can tell it, it really, it really got to him. Uh, the, the New York times also quoted a, um, a German writer, uh, uh, about two months before the movie came out in New York, two months before, uh, Hall, reviewed it and um i i have to read from that writer too i hope you'll give me the moment for this uh no, there yeah, yeah. there is only one main role in this production that of joan filled by the youthful actress maria falconetti first uh she has a boyish bob then her head is cut smooth and at the martyr's stake it is almost naked I am convinced that nobody who has seen or will see her will ever be able to imagine in the future a different maid of Orléans. Joan, indeed, was no spur-clanking Valkyrie. This coarse, uncared-for, vibrant face, unspeakably helpless when confronting human beings, of wonderful power when able to talk with God. Through the smoke of the martyr's pyre, this face is lighted up by terrible suffering and by supernatural happiness." One staggers rather than walks from this fantastically clear, oppressing, gripping, stark film. But what law says that works of art must leave a cheerful impression behind them? <laughs> Amazing. Um, and like, again, just, just to kind of close there on the critics section, like even Pauline Kael, who's like famously one of the crankiest of film critics in her like five, 5,001 nights at the movies called it one of the greatest of all movies and said Falconetti's Joan may be the finest performance ever recorded on film. Yeah. Um, and I suspect we'll come back to that when we talk about the film in more depth. And but she film... wasn't even watching the original cut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right kale wouldn't have had access she was watching the second take. Right. yeah the second take she was watching all second takes possibly mangled by lucas cuts well yeah, yeah. And, and of course every every french new wave filmmaker who was responding with their own joan godard of course chief among them they weren't watching the original either it was a copy of a copy yeah. of a copy and still somehow there was this reflected spiritual light uh and i don't know that just means so much to me which makes me feel more churlish in uh, in rejecting those other versions. I may have to go watch one after this. No, um, but but Phil, all right. So here here's the question then: If listeners have not already seen uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? And Phil, how would you recommend they watch it? Would you recommend they watch it silent? Do you would you like to try a soundtrack? What would you recommend? Well, do I recommend it? Well, duh, but. What way to watch it? Um, mm, I think, honestly, I would leave that up to the viewer. I mean, recommending that they watch it completely silent. Uh, there's some viewers I know that would be an ask. But, um, you know, there's so many versions out there. You know, you look at the list of uh, people who've actually contributed uh, soundtracks to this. I mean, you have the Richard Einhorn version. You have versions from various composers. Uh, most recently, uh, Julia Holter. You can go back to um, uh, even there's, yeah, there's a, a group called Joan of Arc who they're an indie group. They 
data version. Even uh, the likes of Nick Cave actually performed a score for this once upon a time. There are so many versions you can do, you can watch. Um, take your pick, but as long as you're watching it, I'm happy. All right. And Max, what about yourself? What would be, would you recommend listeners pause and watch it? And I, I wish you had paused the podcast an hour ago to watch it. You could have been done by now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So. Oh, look at the time. Look at the look time. Me. Yeah. This is go- it's going. Yeah, it's going. Uh, so yes, definitely go watch it. Uh, obviously my own personal preference is Richard Einhorn, but that has a lot to do with my own history and the kind of music I like and when I saw it and all those things. It would be an ask to watch it completely silent the first time through, but if you've seen it with the Einhorn score before, watching it completely silent is a new experience and and one that I don't regret uh, participating in because you notice, again, editing rhythms differently. You notice emotional beats differently because they're not underscored the same way. So I I, I recommend uh, Phil's way of watching it too. I just wouldn't recommend watching it that way the first time. Um, but I definitely recommend seeing it that way at some point. As for all these other Eureka soundtracks that, that Darren mentioned uh, a, a little while ago, I didn't even know some of those existed. So I guess I've got my homework cut out for me for other ways to watch it. Um, but if, if memory serves... I'm not going to like it with anything besides Einhorn or Silence. Uh, so so pick one of those. Max's letterbox for the year will just be different musical compositions over Joan of Arc. Um, I want, do, you, do you want to talk about the Einhorn soundtrack? I mean, I guess like we're going to talk about it at some point. If you want to talk about it now. Um, uh, uh, Voices of Light is an oratorio that he wrote that uh, he doesn't even think of it, at least if I remember the Criterion notes correctly, he doesn't even think of it as a film score. He thinks of it as a piece of music that somehow accompanies the film. I don't remember the exact language he used for it, Uh, but it definitely stands on its own and it accompanies the film marvelously, too. Uh, You probably have some more info on this, Darren. Well, no, I think uh, as far as I'm aware, Einhorn basically came to the idea of doing a project based around Joan of Arc separately. Like he was mm. like, Joan of Arc is an interesting historical figure. I would like to compose a piece of music around her. And he's like, ah, there is this silent film that exists documenting her life and her trial. And then he watched it and he was like, yeah, no, that is a key inspiration for me in composing this. Yeah. And I, I remember I went out like, I, I very boring. I go out walking during the week. I listen to music on my headphones. And I was like, if we're talking about this movie, I should listen to Einhorn's score as I'm walking. And I was like, okay, fine. When I watch this with Andrew at the weekend, we're going to stream this and I'm going to watch it with the Einhorn score. Uh, because the Einhorn score on its own is just this powerful, religious, evocative piece yeah. of music that I is think stirring. It was my favorite part of the movie, to be honest. Like, it's incredible. It, yeah. It's just an incredible piece of composition. And I was like, I want to see... I've watched the movie without it. Uh, and I'm listening to it and I can kind of hear the rhythms of the movie in it, which is fascinating without it feeling like it's a direct like count pointer counterpoint kind of score. But I can hear the rhythms of the movie in this soundtrack I'm listening to. And I, I think they sorry, go ahead. No, this a controversial view is to watch the movie without the movie. <laughs> <laughs> just, well, we'll get to you in a second, to, Andrew. Just, we'll just to to listen hey, to Andrew, the I'm not going to be upset about that. I've listened to that score by itself, front to back, several times without the movie. Uh, and yeah. I adore it that way. Uh, again, I don't know what I, Dreyer would think about that, but I endure, <laughs> I adore Einhorn's music by itself. Yeah, like, like it does, it does, it does feel kind of like transcendent. Yes. Yeah. Like that. Um, that's it. It does feel again. Max kind of described it as almost kind of spiritual. You described it as transcendent. That is what it feels like, and it just it fits the movie, the music perfectly. And it's weird because it's 
as Max said back at the start of it, like this is a document from like 1928 and you're putting a score on it that was written, was it in like 95, I think? Somewhere in like, there. Like was when yeah. this was composed, somewhere around that point. And it's like they're talking through time with one another in a way that feels vibrant and keeps this, again, you know, these are pictures, these are frozen images uh, played at 24 frames a second of people who are dead and somehow that is still a thing that is changing and evolving and shifting and not just in our perception of it, but in its relationship with like as fundamental a part of it as its soundtrack. It was like, it's only a slight understate overstatement to say that like when I watched it today, it was a, a different movie than it was when I watched it with the other musical accompaniments. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, 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 it's fantastic. Um, so, but Andrew, what about yourself? How would you recommend watching? I would recommend that people listen to this, um, uh, Silent movie. It, 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 no, to to to, to us um, talk about it because <laughs> I, I I believe some of the context um, would be helpful. I I I I think if I had uh, known better, I guess what I was going into, I think I would have enjoyed it more. Um, and I feel like I've missed out a little bit. Um, All the uh, more reason for you to rewatch it then, which is no exactly. Bad thing. That's the thing. But I, I, th- I think for 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 our listeners, it's no bad thing to 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 have kind of um, to maybe uh, have the context going Max in as opposed and, to and, and Phil mm, speak yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, I think that that's it. Like this is not a movie, you can and really I would spoil, recommend that people watch. It. Yeah. yeah. Like I mean, I, I think this is not a movie you can spoil. I mean, you probably know the story of Joan of Arc, and you knew how it ends. That's a very good point. There's Mm. absolutely no way to spoil this movie. You're you're absolutely right about that. There is no way to spoil it. No way to spoil it at all. Hey, everybody who's listening in Titanic, the ship sinks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay, okay. Well, people do have that reaction, though, to these movies that you did, or TV shows that you wouldn't think would spoil. Like, like, I think there were a lot of people in Ireland when the Tudors was being made who were extras and I remember being at a party and there was an extra and he was talking about it and somebody asked him, do you get to find out what happens <laughs> like in, in uh, like next season? Like, well, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a history. Yeah, it's like, kind of it, all there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Read your books. We all know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think like Andrew's point is a very good one, actually. Like I would absolutely recommend watching this. I would absolutely recommend watching it with Einhorn's uh, visions of light score. Um, I do think that there's probably, no reason why if you're listening to this you can't continue to listen to this past the spoiler zone and listen to like much more educated voices like phil and max talk about it and provide context for it and meaning for it um i don't think that you have to pause the podcast but i would definitely recommend watching the movie with that in mind we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone Spoiler zone. So, Max, what is The Passion of Joan of Arc about for you? Yeah. So, we already mentioned this idea that she's a, a hero to a lot of people. Um, and there's something really profound in that. I mentioned that it is, in many ways, a, a, a sobering reminder to a lot of things that I used to believe but don't believe anymore. And a far more sobering reminder of some of the terrible things that are true about humans that I wish were not true about humans. Um, 
on the one hand, we see these incredible spiritual aspirations of humanity in this movie. And, but, but of course, we see them across history, that humans think that they are spiritual beings. And because of this dearly held belief that we are spiritual beings, we brutally murder each other. And that's what The Passion of Joan of Arc is about to me, that I, that I cannot get over the, the utter just moral havoc that I feel inside when I am confronted as perfectly as I am by this movie, that on the one hand, we, we are sure we are lofty, moral, pure, spiritual beings, and on the other hand, to exercise that belief, we burn each other at the stake sometimes. Um, and all sorts of other terrible things, too. That we are somehow both of those things at once as humans. And that is one of that is one of the most terrible truths about humanity or about what happens when you have lots of humans together that create societies with certain hierarchies yeah. and certain, uh, you know, levers of power and bureaucracies and things. I, I, who knows? Maybe an individual human wouldn't do that. Um, but uh, but in the way that, that in the way that power is organized in society. That's one of the things that emerges. And um, I'm reminded of um, The Last Duel, the Ridley Scott movie, that when you get to the end of The Last Duel, um, you have this you have this moment where one side, quote unquote, wins and the other side, quote unquote, loses. But the wins and the losses were for totally the wrong reasons. And yet we cheer for them anyway, even though we know we shouldn't be cheering for them. You know, when, or or another another example of a of a of a moral spectacle from recent history, when you watch certain um, show trials or certain congressional hearings, you know, if it goes the wrong way, uh, you know, uh, if 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 a guilty party is acquitted, uh, we 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 feel the moral weight of this miscarriage of justice. But if somehow the system um, if the, 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 the gears of the system operate in such a way that our side wins, we're like, hooray, what a terrific triumph of the system. Uh, and, 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 and we, we rarely, uh, reflect in a meaningful way on how we, 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 we cheer for might and for power for all the wrong reasons so much of the time. Um, and, and and we we uh, and and then when we when we've killed Joan centuries later we canonize her maybe as a way of absolving us of our guilt but that's also a fiction because while you know saints are real sanctification or holiness in a in a meaningful spiritual sense is not uh, that ultimately we are creatures of flesh and blood uh, that burn when a match is put to us. And I don't know, somehow this film brings all those clusters of giant ideas that I've never quite found the right words to speak about all together. And I, I cry from frame one to frame last when I watch this because I'm just held in that space of, um, of pondering how much we wish we were and how much we just aren't. When I watch it, I mean, it does often feel like the movies like playing this idea of belief and the idea of who owns belief and where, as you said, yeah. power lies. And I think that thing you said about the question of like, 
you know, people as a whole, maybe not great. Individual people, maybe great. Yeah. Almost feels like it's kind of a summation of what watching the movie kind of occurs to me is where it's kind of a battle about who owns God to a certain extent. Well, for it's a sure. battle about who owns religious belief. And it's the idea that you have this teenage girl who like believes that God speaks through her. And that has to be heresy because that challenges the institution of the church. And the church is, as you said, it's not a person, it's people. It's a group. It's a collective organization who believe that they have a monopoly on that and therefore like have the power and the machinery of it. And like that, that's, again, something that the film comes back to. We mentioned like the set design, which, you know, is, is beautiful. It looks great. Uh, you that The film is less interested in showing off like the wide shots of it. But I think it's really interesting that like the way the set is designed is to draw attention to like it as a as a kind of institution like that these men who are rendering this judgment on June and we'll talk about like the film techniques and the way in which um Dreyer kind of like treats Joan differently than he treats like the members of like the church council and the judges and all that sort of stuff but like you have the idea of these archways that are so small that people have to bend to get through them they have to literally bend themselves to fit into the physical institution, the physical space. Mm. You have the idea of like the, the the walls and the windows, which are slightly askew. Like one of my favorite design moments in it is like you you see the judges and you can see the three windows behind them that in a church would be arranged perfectly symmetrically. But because of, again, Warm's like, again, Dr. Calgary, surrealist, abstract kind of, you know, expressionist style, they're all differently proportioned. They all just look off and wrong. They look like small compared to like the next one. They don't fit. And you have this idea, I think. And again, the sequence that you have that is, to me, like most overtly like German expressionist in terms of style is like the torture sequence where she goes to the chamber and you can see like the souls dangling from the ceiling and you can see the the, the racks and the, like the wheels and kind of the crushing spinning stuff like that to me kind of feels in some way like what this is about. It's about like the idea that you have these things that people build that are like vast institutions that are inhuman and the idea of like who holds power and balancing power between those two and forcing like an individual to bend or to break to those um, in a way that I think is, is very, very interesting. But Phil, sorry, what is what is Joan of Arc about for you? Um, well, it's interesting because I would actually share a lot of my thoughts and my interpretations of it with Max. But I mean, cards on the table, I'm coming at it from a... A different point of view I would be much more Christian and spiritual in my outlook on life but there is that same sense of tragedy about about the passion of Joan of Arc but it's more from the point of view that Joan is in one representation as we said that she's representative of the cruelty and the malice that mankind is capable of in the name of its religion whereas from my point of view the tragedy is that Joan is a more spiritual and transcendental kind of creature than uh, anybody who professes any kind of faith in this day and age can possibly understand or recognise probably because so many can be hemmed in by the structures of a given church or faith and it's that inability to cross over that, to achieve that kind of perfection in our relationship with the spiritual world or with God or whatever your choice of deity or whatever else may be. It's the 
the kind of the tragedy in so many religions is that there's there's an inability to recognize God beyond certain ways. And ironically, there is a debate around that these days within the church itself. But it's it's that inability to recognize God in the everyday and in it's something that uh, theologists going back centuries have tried to elucidate on in how where do we see god what like you know we we have conceptions of man in the clouds graybeard and that if you want to believe that fine but for a lot of people very distant you can see him in the personage of christ and that is the, he is the portal if you like through which so many people try and recognize god today in the christian sense okay fine but again these are distant ideals in both time and in imagination so how do how can you really relate christian ideals and christian thoughts in our own lives and there in the figure of joan you have somebody who was trying to bring her faith uh, her ideas of faith to an everyday situation to this invasion by by the by the english of france and how her conviction, as awe-inspiring and all-encompassing as it was, ultimately led her to uh, to destruction. Like, when she was captured, the man whose name she ultimately fought, Charles VII of France, never had any recorded attempts to try and rescue her from her predicament or try and save her. And I think... Well, the here tra- you have the fake, the fake, the really I- fake... Can Charles attempted rescue. They sent a false letter. Well, can exactly. I, say, I find I find Joan of Arc a kind of an an imperfect saint, and a, a, a um and that a lot of it is to do with um her legacy in the kind of um it it was I think it was true after the Hundred Years War, a result of that was this kind of nascent. French and English nationalism and that um, when nationalism really took off in the 19th and 20th century so did Joan of Arc mm. um, but this is but, the Joan of Arc as a patron saint of soldiers kind of thing yeah right? yeah national ar- ar- and bachelor's figure and that the, the, the this idea of kind of um, France being invaded by the English the that 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 it was kind of France being invaded by the French coming from England, <laughs> you know, the 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 the, 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 the these kind of like ideas of Englishness and 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 Frenchness were weren't really were were created then. I th- I, 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 I sorry sorry that, that's maybe a contested thing to say, but um, perhaps it, it would be it would be more modest to say kind of solidified. They were probably um, created in the context of their antipathy towards one another and their but but the, the that this was the plan this was the Plantagenet kind of um, royal family staking their claim to to French lands mm-hmm. and 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 that's. The um the French crown um was uh the this this as I understand it it was kind of a a a war of succession in 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 the sense that 
um, people supporting the Plantagenists thought that they were um, uh, protecting France and and uh, and the 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 and the, the French crown and the right of 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 the Plantagenists to kind of hold this land and their fealty. And that they didn't kind of compromise their 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 Frenchness, I suppose. And then there was the the um, um I always forget the name of the other house, but the the um, Charles the Seventh. Um, uh, so yeah, it 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 kind of, and then it becomes this kind of simplified thing, I I guess in retrospect, where it's it's there is France and there is England, which is this kind of thing that we have now, and which was sort of um. Uh, created then and it's a it's 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 an antipathy where there where there's kind of like a heroism uh, in the english psyche for like henry v and in the french psyche for uh joan of arc where they were just too belligerent in a um in a 100 year war which was ultimately pointless Hmm. can i this is i guess i had to throw throw open to the group thing because i think max kind of referenced this and i think you referenced this as well in terms of like what maybe alienated you a little bit from the movie but it's obviously it's worth noting that like dreyer employed like actual experts um who had like knew the history of joan of arc um the script i believe existed before he was brought onto the project um now he did apparently shorn quite a bit from that script um but he did make sure that a lot of, say, the costume was was, was period accurate. Um, as the opening scroll says, you know, we drew we lifted a lot directly from the trial manuscripts. But he obviously, like, really compresses that, where, like, this seems to take place over the course of a single day, as opposed to taking place over an extended period, things like that. There is a level of abstraction here. And I guess, like, that's a, maybe a question for Andrew, for Max, for Phil. But, like, is it fair to say that, like, the passion of Joan of Arc is not really specifically about Joan of Arc? Is that is that a? F- I, yeah, I think I. Sorry, I'll 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 answer very briefly. I think Joan of Arc is very uh, has a very malleable legacy, and I talked about the, a, a little bit about the stuff that I don't kind of um, uh, warm to, but there's so much um, that I, I I don't know if we've mentioned the kind of feminism of Joan of Arc, but also like like I've been in in groups of kind of. Um, like uh you know kind of crusty far left kind of uh uh people in like belgium and france where where it's it's all about um jean d'arc and where she as a peasant hero is that yeah and where she is is like like that that they feel like they they have to kind of like um um re uh, resurrect the, yeah, yeah, the spirit of Joan Joan of Arc. So it's it it is a very kind of like, as I say, kind of malleable and contested legacy, and it means a lot for a lot of different kind of um, types of people. And maybe it's kind of simplistic to kind of um, just because nationalists have kind of um, uh, nailed their colors to her mast. Um, it, uh, but I, I I guess it creates a problem for me maybe with, where with where where I'm celebrating her for 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 the kind of historical context and, and I mean, Ra- I mean, rather rather than the spiritual context and, 
And oh. before before we just throw it to Phil and kind of Max, it is worth acknowledging, like, this is a movie that was made by the Société Générale de Film in France. It was a film that was caught up, like, in a very French nationalist identity in the 1920s. Now, one could argue that those same French nationalists rejected it because it wasn't suitably French enough to them. But the text yeah. that introduces it, for example, a text that closes it, makes very heavy reference to, say, Joan's importance to the people of France, for example, and to the French nation, the soul of France, and all this sort of stuff as well. Like, that, that nationalist stuff is is baked in textually but sorry to, to max and, and to phil like how do you feel about this as as like a story of joan of arc specifically i guess max um like is this a universal thing is it a metaphor is it using it to tell a broader story or is it specifically joan um i i saw phil had raised his hand so i'm, I'm actually oh, going to defer to him uh oh well, but well thank you um well i mean i was just going to say well i suppose to reiterate a point that we've kind of at least touched on already is part of not the problem with Joan of Arc as a figure but I suppose the one of the qualities of her is that in as unmaterialistic a way as I can put this she's very malleable like we have touched on so many groups that she can mean something to I mean a patron saint of soldiers sure but also a feminist figure uh, a figure of for for youth I mean she was having her first visions at 14 she was dead by 90 and at that uh, up before that then she had led men soldiers into battle i mean no matter what culture you're from to do those things at the age that she was is absolutely remarkable and as a woman um but she has also a figure for nationalists and a figure for the french and then Andrew saying that she is a figure perhaps for far left figures in her place as somebody uprising against established authorities. How they would reconcile her faith to their cause is a matter of concern, but that's for them to work out. Um, but that's going to be an issue for any group that would attempt to pin their colours to her and her figure. Um it's, I mean, so already, even before talking about the Passion Joan of Arc specifically, um, Joan represents so many things. So then if you come to the film, what she represents, I mean, already you've got your two guests here discussing two different points of view and what she represents from very personal points of view, obviously. Um, and then... Andrew and Darren, you could come at this with two very different interpretations again. So, I mean, what's it for Dreyer? What's it for the scriptwriter? Okay, he is the scriptwriter. It was based on a script originally written by Joseph Delta, French poet. But as you say, when Dreyer came on board, he uh, eschewed pretty much the entire script, kept the period detail short. But um, by and large, it's his own script at the end of the day. Um it's a film that is open to so many subjective meanings depending on how you read Joan, what she represents for you. And that's going to come from your own experience and your own background. That's that's kind of the point. And it does, I think, explain another aspect of the film's appeal because you can't get a more evergreen figure in, in history than Joan of Arc just because she can represent so many ideals. And the idea that so many forces and so many ideals can be represented in one 
person, one young woman in medieval France. That boggles the mind in so many ways that she could still have this power. I mean, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at this uh, booklet here that came with the Eureka Masters of Cinema edition. Darren, you must have the same one. Snap, but, like, snap, right? But you've got this image here. I'm holding it up. I appreciate we're on an audio visual, an audio medium. Damn it! But like talking to anybody who has a conception of Joan of Arc, um, I mean, it says a lot that. Yes, she can represent so many different things, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who I think if they had an image of Joan in mind, it will be uh, René Falconetti in the role of Joan. And um, I'm going to go on the record here. Uh, Max said that, who was it that said that uh, the, they thought their performance of Joan was the greatest they've ever Pauline seen? Kale? Pauline Kale? Was it Pauline Kale? Yeah. Uh, well, maybe the finest performance ever recorded on film. Okay. Uh, who was that? Well, uh, okay. I agree with that sentiment. I mean, part of the reason that I love revisiting this film is that Falconetti, she's the greatest performance I've ever seen. And, you know, Darren, I've seen a lot of performances, but I like it. This is working, I know, in combination with Dreyer's direction, but. There isn't a single performance I can think of that moves me so much. And I know I said earlier that I can be quite an empathetic person anyway, but when she cries, I cry. When she gasps, I want to gasp. And there is something immensely moving, not just about those images, but it's something about the empathy that cinema can elicit. I know we've talked before, Darren, I know you have, um, Roger Ebert describing cinema as an empathy machine. I know that... Andrew has just crossed a box uh, off the 250 finger part. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never been Glad to have taken that one for you. Uh, But that I feel no, no disrespect to anybody, present company or otherwise, there's, you can see that as being an overused trope, but I think Passion of Joan of Arc absolutely is an example of this, where you can, if you're struggling to reconcile all these different interpretations of who Joan of Arc is or was or what she represents, you can find that here. You can find that in this film and in this performance. And... Clearly, Dreyer is in conversation with a lot of these elements in the nationalism, in the religious aspects, in in her position as a woman in a very, very patriarchal society of the time. And she gets condensed beautifully, magnificently into this one, into what is still sounding to me one of only two performances she ever gave on film. And sadly, René Falconetti came with a very sad backstory herself. And so did Dreyer. And so did so many people who would have worked on this film. It's it's born of a time when France was recovering from the war. And it comes from people who have been damaged themselves in so many ways. 
and they probably found a certain amount of expression in Joan, in Jean d'Arc, and so do I, and so does Max clearly, and so does anybody, most anybody who watches this, because there is, she is this bundle of contradictions and this helpless, helpless soul at the heart of this film. And we're all helpless souls at the core of our own stories. And I think part of the reason that this film resonates still to this day is that anybody who's going through a trial of their own, whatever it might be, will recognise that tortured face and those tears. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely devastating. I want to talk about Falconetti in a moment, but I just wanted to, to throw the question to Max there in terms of like, the Joan of Arkness, the generality of this, the abstractness of this. Is this, do you see this as a story specifically about the historical figure of Joan of Arc or, uh, you is, know, is, I, is it something? Go ahead. Uh, is it something different? No, yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't really considered that question before, but I've uh, had a terrific time over the past 10 minutes listening to the three of you consider it, and it's generated some new thoughts. And that's that, um, who was the who was the philosopher who said uh, whereof one cannot speak thereof one must be silent um, that <laughs> I don't was know, Ludwig I like Wittgenstein Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein it was Wittgenstein that's right whereof one cannot speak thereof one must be silent and I think that that is so there's sort of a silent film joke in there but that's not what I meant it as I meant it is Dreyer understanding that uh, and again, I don't want to speak for, for Dreyer as a person, but Dreyer within that author role and the choices that Dreyer made and the choices that Falconetti made and the choices that the other authors of this film, the co-authors of this film made, uh, the, all the craftspeople, all the actors, everybody, they, you, can, you can tell that somehow in that, in that organ of filmmaking, they didn't come down on any one side of the fence. They didn't say this is a nationalist film or this is a feminist film or this is a Christian film or this is a film about the absurdity of how of how certain power structures destroy people or this is a film about insanity or this is a film about rebellion or it's a film about youth or it's a film about, you know, lost causes or it's a film about it didn't it doesn't say any of those things. But that doesn't mean that it's an empty signifier because there are plenty of would be artists who show up and and try to say as little as possible in the hopes that they will be perceived as having depth. This film speaks with an incredible clarity and depth and richness. It's and it has a lot to say. Like it, 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 it a lot of people accuse it of, or just describe it as being minimalistic, but that doesn't mean that it's vacant. It has so much in it. It's just that at every turn where they could not come down on or render a judgment for how reality really is they didn't and so when you approach this film now if you want to see this as a as a film where she is ultimately a christ figure ultimately um a, a, a beacon of christian spiritual light you can and you're not wrong to see that that's there if you if you want to see her as this avatar for you know humanity's inhumanity to uh, to humans you can see it that way, and 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 it it is it fully speaks in that way as well. And there are, and all the other different ways that we talked about it being able to speak. Obviously, with our own positionality, we're not centering certain interpretations as much as we're centering others. But even for the interpretations that we haven't talked about, um, again, Joan as uh, as a as an avatar of queer culture, it's 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 there too, and and it speaks very strongly that way too. Uh, 
um, <clears throat> sorry, I, I, I am, I am stunned anew that this work of art is able to say so much without overstepping, um, the boundaries of what humans can say about humanity. That's kind of amazing. Um, and it's amazing for an artwork. It's amazing for a work of philosophy. It's amazing for a theologian. It's amazing for literally any human being to be able to recognize the limits of what they can make pronouncements on and not go beyond that. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why it holds up as much as it does. That did not answer your question at all. Uh, <laughs> um, so is, is, is this ultimately about the literal figure of Joan of Arc, who, who was from Dom Remy and died in 1429, blah, blah, blah. I know it can't be because at this point, like what even was that figure? Her story has been reinterpreted so many times, um, by so many different people with so many different purposes, uh, that it's been, it's been stretched beyond all recognition by all matter of partisanship. Uh, and and each one of the four of us is coming at it from our own perspective, and we're talking across each other during this conversation, <laughs> even as much as we are attempting to meet each other in the middle and say, yes, I agree with you, and I see where you're coming from. Each of us is taking her a, a, as meaning something different, and, you know, and and uh, and I guess that's that's inevitable. But at, at, at but one of the reasons why we have to keep coming back to a work of art like this is because it teaches something it teaches us something new each time we watch it and 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 urges us out of that positionality that we brought to the table um by by showing us that it can be a, uh, that it can mean so many other things i'll stop talking no no that's beautiful um we like phil mentioned uh falconetti and like i like again we've been talking so much about the film we've been talking so much about Dreyer. it's worth acknowledging falconetti she i'm amazed she a, hasn't come up in the conversation more so far to be honest she she basically she, she, she is the had film. an acting career that was basically martyred yeah. by this movie because how yes. could she be anything yeah. else besides joan of arc type she had done that um yeah. and, but like the really strange obviously she's a, again this is the stage where cinema's still young you you know you don't really have internet you know you're developing international film stars but most of they're going to hollywood all that sort of stuff but it's like you have this idea of she's a theater actor like a lot of like people who are transitioning into early film but she's a comedy actor that's that's the thing that really strikes me about this is that like she's known for her work on stage in like comedies in fact she goes back to her work on like comedies on stage as well um, and like, I think you have this kind of thing where it's just such an incredibly powerful, moving, dramatic performance. And so much of this movie is her face. Like the film is 80 minutes long. And I, I would not be surprised to discover that 50 minutes of that, maybe even like 55 minutes of that are just close ups on Falconetti's face. It, it's maybe um, a commonality between this and Come and See. And I, I, I don't think I connected as much with Come and See either. But the, that there were lots, lots of forlorn, tortured staring. But the, but I I I think I I pref I liked this more because it wasn't gurning. <laughs> just, just 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 to speak the, the like very on a very surface level, just about, about the kind of facial expressions. Well, I think, um, I mean, you can't talk about Passion of Joan of Arc without talking about the faces, Falconetti's mm -hmm. and all the other cast members, but. I mean, prior was, was Tom Milne called it virtually a symphony of faces. Yeah, um, and uh, who was uh, said? Sorry, I'm thinking of other quotes here, but uh, actually, no less than 
Louis Bunuel described the painful geography of Dreyer's faces. Their pores like wells. Like, I think any great director you can think of since that tries to explore humanity, that tries to get into someone's head in any more profound way, it, they're all about getting up close to the face. Think of Terence Malick. Think of Jonathan Demi. They're known for... The Spielberg face. face, hell even. Ex to pick a very exaggerated, cartoonish, like, you know, abstraction of that, arguably. But but, well, I th it's absolutely Cuban valid. I mean, the point Cuban is, Claire? it's... I mean, there are a few... There are a few things as evocative as a human face. I mean, they're, they're registers of emotions. So you, in turn, will respond to those with emotions of your own. And uh, Passion of Joan of Arc is absolutely an exemplar of that. Um, as I say, softly that I am, when I see Falconetti cry, it evokes, evokes that same reaction in me. But then you cut to a face of one of the judges. And I remember this time in particular watching, there's one of them who comes forward in the shot, cuts back to Joan, cuts to him again, asking a question. And it frames him, for, it looks at him from the side. But the way he is so vociferous in asking his question, his eyes bulge and the wrinkles at the side of his face move. They open up and his... Almost his forehead seems to roll back. The receding hairline rolls back even more. And I realise that's pot calling back to the kettle in my case. But it's the, the whole face just moves. Like the faces are the special effect. The faces are the story. They are the medium by which Dreyer tells this tale. For me, there's a deeper philosophical and spiritual resonance to that too. Because ultimately... Any spiritual or emotional state that we have ever had, that we've ever tried to communicate to another person, had to come through our faces. It had to come through the material parts of our body. And when, when words fail, of course. Right. That's not where even, you look. That's true, but not even where words fail. We, like, it, there, are, there are inner states that can only be expressed or communicated through external states right our faces are expressions and this film is constantly abutting the impossibility of again these beings made out of matter who who think rightly or wrongly that they are spiritual beings and that you know the impossibility of translating across that divide and and there is an incredible tragedy to that there is comedy to that it is grotesque it is because there's a lot of grotesquery in this movie Yes. Um, and I mean that as, uh, you know, as high mm. praise because because that's part of it. That's part of it, that he gets as close as he can to the interior of these characters, but ultimately crashes into the face. And you can't go beyond that. The face mm. gets us as close as we can. And it's and 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 it communicates that emotion as immediately as it can be communicated. But that still isn't what we're trying to talk about. Um, 
you know, and and even though I must be silent because I cannot speak of this, the, the part of the tragedy here is that we all need to try to speak about this. We all need to try to communicate our own internal states. That that that's a, one one possible uh, uh, summation of human history is a you know a bunch of meat creatures trying to get through the 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 bar the you know the barrier of our own faces and our own mouths and our own gestures. Uh, these internal states and failing to do so um, or or succeeding to do so only to, you know, 20 percent effectiveness. Uh, and so the film is constantly grappling with that with that kind of tragedy of what cannot be communicated. Um, and I think it's, it's worth just acknowledging the technique that was used here, because like oh, this yeah. is part of what's so innovative about it. And we mentioned like how much of this movie shot in close up and how much that wasn't part of like the cinematic language of classic cinema or silent cinema. Where like the, the conception was, and I think we mentioned earlier, you use close ups at the climax because they mm -hmm. will wear the audience out. They will make the audience tired and want to go to sleep like Andrew did. Um, but you have this idea that if you keep constantly doing it, you'll kind of wear out the audience and exhaust them. Mm. But the idea that like this wasn't accomplished using makeup. Like, the effects that you have, like, apparently, obviously, uh, Dreyer banned makeup from the set. He had a strict no makeup rule. I have a quote here that's probably just worth reading if I can find it here in a second, um, where he said, basically, um, my actors, sorry, in order to give the truth, I dispensed with beautification. My actors were not allowed to touch makeup and powder puffs. I also broke with the traditions of constructing a set. Right from the beginning of shooting, I let the scene architects build all the sets and make all the other preparations. And from the first to the last scene, everything was shot in the right order as well. So he has this idea that like, and again, this is the thing we talked about where like the producers were like, you spent this much building a literal castle and you didn't show it on screen in any detail. <laughs> and his argument is that you see it reflected kind of to Max's point in the faces of the people around him and the actors that he's using because they're dealing with the reality that's been constructed around them. You're seeing it reflected through the human face and to Dreyer, that is the most interesting special effect that you can have. But it's things like not using makeup and using lighting. And again, this is again, this is one of those great innovations of uh, like late silent era filmmaking. And we talked about this when we talked about like Sunrise where one of the ironies of going from silent to sound is that you set back the techniques of filmmaking by like a decade or two because obviously you can't move the camera as much you can't do all the tricks that you spent decades learning how to do in silent films but like so they had like i think is it is a panatone film which allowed them for the first time to shoot without makeup it used to be in the silent era you'd have to apply like gray green makeup to look like flesh on screen and so the advent of like panatone makeup uh sorry panatone film and panatone cameras uh, meant that they could shoot actual people. And funnily enough, actually, the sets that you see in the background, they all had to be painted bright pink um, <laughs> to appear gray on film. Um, to get that washed out, like, beige, kind of, like, gray effect. They, all the actors were performing in these giant pink sets. But the idea was that you had this film technology that now existed where you could shoot without makeup, and it's all lighting. Like, the big difference between, like, how he shoots Falconetti and how he shoots the judges isn't makeup. It's lighting. He shoots Falconetti in soft light. She was 36 years old when she made this. Now, I know she may not look 19 when you see her, but, but you she think looks she looks younger. maybe like the cast of Dawson's Creek. She's maybe in her early 20s, mid 20s. But she was 36. And with soft lighting, they're able to make her look that young and that freckled and that, that kind of, again, very innocent. And you have all the, the men... 
And I think like Phil described as like having pores that open like wells, but have like cracks on their faces that are like maps of like human suffering and torment. Warts on their faces that feel like they deserve prominent billing uh, when you get to the credits. Horns. At the start. Yeah. Even their nose horns hairs. and hair. Yeah. Like they're, they're styling their hair like demon horns like, at one point. Like they're absolutely made to be the most ugly, reprehensible versions of themselves they can possibly be. And, but all yeah. through light, like yeah. not with makeup, all through like lighting, framing, composition, using the camera high and low angles, the way in which like as, as as kind of Max and you mentioned, the way in which you'll cut back and forth through conversations and like suddenly it'll only be the top of the guy's head. Like the mm. guy will be speaking and all you can see is his gigantic forehead, his big eyes and the gigantic wart on his face. The way in which like it's using the language of film to communicate all this stuff that was... You, know, you would assume to be traditionally theatrical, which is lots of characters speaking in a confined space, but using film to convey that in the way that film can through close-ups, uh, through lighting and through storytelling and through editing. Like it, you know, again, we talked a bit about how this is an important film, but it's it's impossible to overstate like how important in terms of like telling a story in a visual medium mm. this film is. I think uh, in terms of its sorry, in terms sorry. of its editing the. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping in there. Um, but in terms of its setting, I know that a lot of people would probably cite something like Battleship Potemkin as being more important in that it got there first in some ways. But And was an influence here, I think. Like, it, it very obviously at the climax as well. Like, I think he cited yeah. Eisenstein as an influence. Oh, definitely. I mean, the riots that break out at the end of the film as Joan is being put to death, I, there's, you know, definite nods to the Odessa Step sequence and other moments from Potemkin. But, I mean, it's just as important. I mean, if Potemkin kind of showed how this should be done, then Passion of Joan of Arc is kind of nailing it into place, saying, yeah, this works. Um, And it still has those kind of grace notes, those moments that make you realise that the storytelling is actively working. Like, there's a great shot towards the end when some soldiers are running through the gateway Oh, yeah. And the camera pans up and it shoots through the portcullis and through that you see the crowd advancing. But before they can get beneath the portcullis, we get a cut. So it shows that there's the divide, that they are rushing in headlong into this battle to try and stop the stop the execution. But the divide is laid down in the visual language of the, of the film. And Dreyer absolutely uses it to maximum effect. And, I mean, not just in the close-ups, although they're the most recurrent and obvious tool in the film, but it's clear that he has great ideas about how to use all the tricks that are available to him. And bearing in mind that we're talking about cameras that would have been both unwieldy and fragile, and yet the camera is all over the place in this. The angles, the movements... The movement, but, yes. Uh, he's not afraid to use cameras any which way he can think of. And sometimes the movements are erratic, as in the final battle, the final riot scenes, but not, you know, completely incomprehensible. But there's also scenes and shots of great elegance. There's the wonderful part early on where uh, the judges take a vote on whether Jones conversations with God are admissible in court and they raise their hands and you get this shot panning across of just 
the hands up in the air. They look like statues, almost like something out of a, a James Bond opening sequence, the way it, it glides. And it's just wonderful to watch. You're, the, 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 the starkness of that moment is brought home in that gliding movement. And the film is peppered with those moments. It's riveting to watch. Uh, the reason that it works is because of that storytelling. And it had to work because, of course, it was silent. So Dreyer had to make the most of the visuals, and he absolutely did. And the fact that it still holds up so well in that regard is testament to his craft. And I think that we can also... Oh, I'm sorry, Andrew. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to... Um, I, I don't think I'm really adding to anything, but it, it's a terrific feature of the medium, this um, uh, close-up. And um, that it gets used to kind of full effect in this movie. Because I, I, I remember being in the kind of leaving certificate, perhaps with yourself, Darren. And we were going through like another Macbeth soliloquy. And I was like, these soliloquies are great and everything, but they're very contrived. And I can look at, <laughs> and I was saying this to the to the English teachers. I, I, I was saying like, I can look at Tony Soprano's face and the soliloquy is there. You know, I don't need him to say it. Um, all right. Um, and 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 that's and kind, kind of like of the that. this is like the, this yeah. is kind of, it's, a, it's a courtroom drama with all these like legal documents and all this thing that's being said and obviously titles. But it's like, no, look at the face. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that that's such a a um, that's something that you don't get from um, theater mm. that you do get in in film and and I guess TV. Um, is the 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 power of 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 expression in close up? Yeah, um, and just, I want to talk. Sorry, yeah. um, I, usually when we talk about influences, we talk about people who are I don't know lesser copyists of of, of giants of cinema. Uh, and one of the one of the great things about this is that, at least from my perspective, Dreyer was able to look at what uh, Eisenstein accomplished in Potemkin or in Strike and say, all right, I just need a little bit of that. I just need a little bit of that technique. I'm not going to copy it. I'm not going to do exactly what he did, but I am taking some information from that. Or from Abel Gantz's La Rue, which he would have obviously have seen and has a lot of rapid editing in it. Uh, or from uh, Gantz's Napoleon with all the just like, let's put a camera on a rope and just swing it all over the place or whatever. Uh, there are moments where, where early in the trial, there's that, there's that moment where the camera sort of swings up to the face of a soldier who's yelling at her, sort of swings in, swings out, swings in, swings out. Yeah. Just real quick, a small yeah. swinging motion, not that miasma of swinging that you get in, in Napoleon. And so, so clearly Dreyer was able to see the, the utility of all of these techniques and not use them just to show pieces for themselves, but, uh, but to advance the, the kind of spiritual grammar that he was attempting to come up with. And he he succeeded in that remarkably. Uh, it, it's 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 amazing to me that the first few times that I watched this film, I never even thought about Eisenstein. I never even thought this editing is somewhat Eisensteinian. I never thought about Napoleon and thought, oh, a couple of these camera moves, like where he's pointing the camera straight down and the shot tilts to being upside down as the soldiers go yeah. underneath us, march in. Yeah, yeah as they march in. I it, that that never struck me as as being somehow. 
um, over the top or or too, or or too much or attempting to be any kind of ridiculous. And he comes up with so many different ways to frame a close up in this movie. You were talking about just seeing the top of somebody's head, but we also just see the side of somebody's head, or we see a stack of three heads somehow in close up. And I don't know how he came up with so many different ways to frame a human face in a close up or in a medium close up. It's it's astonishing to me. And nobody seems to have even tried to follow up on this and see what else can be done. It's like any any filmmaker who's seen this, like, well, he did it and there's no way we could possibly compete with it. Uh, and and it's just sort of been We'll just left take one or two this... for ourselves and leave the rest. Right. That's that's exactly what it is. And and when you're talking about lighting too, when um what's the what's the name of the like le- leader old man in the trial? Koshan, is that his name? Uh Koshan Eugene Sylvain, yeah. Eugene Sylvain. Yeah. When we I'm when... sorry, Phil. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean that as a correction. I was just saying it. This... No, when no, you're, you're I, right. You then. should say it. When we see of, his... of that which I know nothing, I should speak. I should not speak. <laughs> that that we... is why you should correct me. But Max, sorry. That's awesome. When we see his last close up, where it, we sort of see just the uh, one half of his face viewed straight on, but we're only seeing one half of it because it's almost like a door has gotten in the way of the other half. Uh, or a door, or door frame or a wall, something like that. Um, my memory's a little imprecise and it's tough to describe anyway uh, <laughs> how, exactly how Dreyer framed the shot. Uh, and we, we see him looking on with almost a what have I done kind of expression. We had no idea that that actor had that expression to be able to be made because we had only seen it. And somehow in the lighting and the framing, uh, we, we we don't we don't need a full Shakespearean soliloquy to Andrew's point. We we've got it. We see all the regret right there. We see all of the spiritual devastation right there in how these various mechanisms of power have led up to this awful thing that's about to happen. We we see it in his face, and uh, again, it's inevitable. I can't put words on that that, ex- that explain uh, the achievement. It just is. Just go watch the damn thing. <laughs> we should mention by the way eisenstein's come up twice here uh do you want to know what eisenstein thinks of this movie oh, i boy. don't actually i don't care because okay, he, okay, was a, okay. he was a, right. he was a he was a he was he was great politically but also he was a typologist <laughs> and he did not understand the human face in the way that dreyer clearly did because he was just looking for certain types to fulfill certain uh you know roles and like well i need the mean industrialist in this role can you wear glasses and get shot in the eye right he didn't <laughs> have do. the same he didn't have the same level of empathy the dryer obviously has, and he didn't have the same level of trying to see depths of humanity, even in the most grotesque face for, for Eisenstein. And maybe there are some Eisensteinians who are going to be really mad at me for this. I, I think that for Eisenstein, he was mainly selecting faces to, to get across a, a single idea or a single emotion rather than any kind of approach. empathetic depth. Uh, Hitchcock but, approach of actors as cows, really. Yeah, essentially, essentially, there, there just there isn't any empathy there, or there isn't the same kind of empathy that we see here. Obviously, I want to hear what Eisenstein had to say. Come but on, I, but I had to <laughs> mean first. <laughs> well, it's it's good that you softened him up because here's his comment: very interesting and beautiful, but not a film, rather a series of wonderful, wonderful photographs. That's apparently Eisenstein's big takeaway from. Yeah, and he's wrong. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we're all disagreeing um, with each other here, and the point is we're agreeing to disagree, yeah. even with Einstein. I, 
but I think um, I do think that to, to bring it back to like stuff that was Phil was saying, like the movement, the like again, people talk about the editing and they talk about the close up so much. The movement of the camera here is just staggering, and the way in which it communicates ideas. Like I think of that shot of the judges when they have the clever question to ask her, where they think they're going to trap her in like the heresy, where you have the idea literally passing up through the line of judges, As and they you can see like with the ca- that when they whisper mm. from ear to ear, and you can see the camera kind of moving with the idea as it crosses from one ugly face to another ugly face like it's just again astounding visual storytelling but it is worth noting in terms of like editing as well like again um these are statistics that i have from somebody who knows far more about film than i do so it has like 1333 individual shots plus another 174 intertitles uh that's 100 oh sorry 1517 shots in total to give a sense of how much more editing this movie had than its contemporaries the average hollywood film at the same time contained between 500 to 1000 cuts including intertitles this is like one and a half times the upper limit of the average um in terms of like maximum it would be extremely rare to see a hollywood film with over like 1300 including intertitles so this is like again another nearly 300 sorry 217 on top of that this is an incredibly edited film and like again there's the observation from david boardwell which i find fascinating and again this gets back to that basic film grammar where of the films like over like 1500 cuts fewer than 30 carry a figure or object over from one to another and fewer than 15 constitute genuine matches on action so there's like the editing has no internal narrative continuity it doesn't obey again what was at the time still the nascent say 180 degree rule it doesn't have like the idea of cutting on objects for example it, it it has this kind of abstract dream logic to it which is like fascinating and entrancing to watch where you'll go from like you know Jeanne contemplating her hair on the floor of the chamber where it's been shorn from her to cutting to the peasants outside to cutting to the party taking place to cutting to the judges and understanding that all of these objects are taking place like within a very narrow geographical space within the same time frame but are different ideas all interacting like when characters are talking you don't cut from one's perspective to another. You cut from, like, as Phil said, like a 90 degree angle on the side of their face, almost in silhouette, to an intense close up, to like looking up at Jean, looking down at the judges, or looking down at Jean, looking up at the judges, sorry. Like, it's the editing in this thing is, is remarkable. Again, in terms of storytelling, it is like editing that you're watching today and you're like, this is. This is vibrant and a lot. This isn't like films that look like this today seem like avant garde yeah, to a certain it's extent. It's using you know? editing to do all sorts of other different things. Thank you so much for bringing this up because there are a couple of like set pieces of editing in this film that I love, like where they're spinning the torture wheel and up until yeah. the point where Joan faints. It's it, absolutely incredible. And the way that it mm-hmm. matches camera movement, too, because the way the camera tilts up and down on the torture wheel and then that magnificent shot that must be maybe eight or 12 frames long where she starts to drop the quill pen and it's tilting down on the quill pen and you only see it starting to drop through her fingers for, again, like eight or 12 frames. Not very much because it's it's in the middle of this very thickly cut moment but at that moment the the movement of the quill and the movement of the camera and the movement of the editing are all magnificently perfectly matched and so i think about the editing in terms of those set pieces most of the time when i think about the editing of this film but i had never thought about that bordwellian idea of there are not matches on action in this movie 
I, and I and I so I have to follow up on that because that's a really cool idea. It, mm. it because usually when we're watching a Hollywood film, and obviously this isn't a Hollywood film, but we, usually when watching a narrative film from anywhere, uh, because the Hollywood film grammar is is as about as international Universal as a film grammar yes. could be. Uh, when usually when we're watching a, a film cut according to that grammar, we are watching for what bringing Gilles Deleuze back, what Gilles Deleuze would call a sensory motor link. We are seeing a character perceive something and then that perception being used as a motivator for action. Uh, so they might see something and then we get the eyeline match and then we see them take an action based on that and the editing is stitching together the various steps or stages of that action to propel us forward through this very cause and effect, uh, very causal kind of a storyline. But the moment you take out matches on action and the moment that the eyeline matches are no longer meaningful as eyeline matches, uh, you you get a spiritual space where the shots are 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 representative or stand-ins for spiritual and emotional ideas that are bumping into each other and 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 creating new uh, ideas and states out of that collision. And I guess I just hadn't considered how profoundly this film rejects traditional editing grammar because it's not like it's trying to break the 180 degree rule. It's not like it's trying to give us false eyeline matches. It's not like it's trying to give us matches on action that aren't matching on action. You know, it's not doing those little Spielberg tricks where a baseball is 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 hit in one shot and then a cell phone is caught in the next shot like from Hook or or whatever. Like it, it, he he he's he's not trying to jokingly play with that grammar. He's just not using it. He's just using he's doing something else, but not but but not somehow uh, destroying our ability to watch it because of that. Oh, wow. You're giving me more appreciation for this movie. Damn you, Darren. How did you manage this through research? <laughs> I just had a more disturbing thought. We're talking about, for its time, hyperkinetic camera work being edited to suggest ideas that don't necessarily make sense within the narrative. My God. Dryer walked so Michael Bay could run. <laughs> you, you, you joke, but I had a note written down that I was going to ignore until you brought in Michael Bay. Say but it, I was like, say it. like, okay, fine. The the again, the rejection of so much of what we expect well, he, of it. He, he is an uh, auteurish filmmaker. Michael Bay is absolutely as whatever as anyone might think of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Bring on the blank check season on Michael Bay. I am all here for it. <laughs> in the, but I think in like, the real definition of auteur, uh, yeah. not the I am an uh, you know I'm trying to position myself as an artiste who has who ha who has utterances that must that must be offered to the public. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 the the real definition of auteur the old days is somebody who just sort of did it and and they had obsessions that maybe they weren't even aware of that came to the fore. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't but, seem that Michael Bay has too much awareness of his own obsessions, but they always come to the fore. Uh, that's what makes them so fun. Yeah, lamp yeah, posts, lots of lamp posts. What? But but again and again, like this is not okay. We 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 can't talk about the editing rhythms and camera movements of Michael Bay. But like the thing about Michael Bay is when he moves the camera, he positions objects like lamp posts so that you have a frame of reference. Mm. That's the thing that people who imitate Michael Bay don't get. So when they do yeah. the spinny camera thing, there aren't lamp posts. And I know lamp posts are funny, but lamp posts also like orient you in the space. Like and, and I I don't. Don't know that Bay understands. Sorry, Max is checking his watch. I'm sorry. We are running. No, 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 no. It's because I got a text and I'm reading it on my watch. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but like, 
And again, the thing that I was going to say that was very stupid, but since Phil mentioned Michael Bay, was like the rejection of things like establishing shots in this movie and the fact that there are only extreme close-ups um, reminded me a bit of like how like Emily St. I'm going to, I love that I'm outsourcing this. I'm not even taking responsibility for what I'm about to say, but <laughs> Emily St. James made the point about like Zack Snyder's directorial style, which is that he does not have mid shots. Like the defining attribute of Zack Snyder as a director, as a visual stylist, is that it is intense close-ups or massive epic wide shots. There are very few mid shots that provide the relationship of objects physically to one another. So I was thinking when I was watching these intense close-ups, I was like, did Zack Snyder watch this and go, yeah, but what if I used one other type of shot? What if I just, <laughs> instead of, you know, not using establishing shots, I use establishing shots, but just didn't use mids. <laughs> use uh, use close-ups and satellite imagery. Yeah, those, <laughs> those two extremes. Um, but um, to, to, to Max's point, and this isn't unrelated to Phil's uh, observation at Michael Bay and Lampos. Um, what I find really interesting is that, like, the film's interesting close-ups kind of becomes an utter disinterest in its environment which I find fascinating where because those walls are all painted pink, they all kind of like look white and, you know, it does use its sets very well for those shots that we mentioned. You're, you're always aware that this is kind of a warped physical space. It doesn't really make sense. Things are at an angle or they're not built to human proportions or windows are strangely stacked next to one another or things look like they've been bolted on by nails. Like even when she goes into the torture room, that looks like something from Calgary where all those elements are like zag tooth saws or like the rack doesn't look like it's proportioned right it looks like they hired a really bad carpenter to make the rack where the 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 dimensions just aren't right even for an instrument that by definition is not right you don't you you look at it and you can't really imagine how it's going to work physically yes you you get how it works as an object like you might do if it means it's going to be more uncomfortable for the person in it it probably makes it a more effective tool of torture um, if they're looking at it and they're confused by it before the actual <laughs> torture, uh, before the physical torture has begun, is the kind of like. Well, I was just thinking more like as soon as they lie down, it this isn't very comfortable. Can I get a cushion? <laughs> um, but like, I I think there's something there in like the fact that this movie spends like an hour indoors and then goes outdoors. But there's mm. something fascinating in the fact that when they go outdoors, like the background of the sky behind them just looks the same as the background of the walls behind them. There's the moment where, like, you have, like, the chief is... I can't remember who it is, but they he's... They painted spe- it pink. They did paint the sky pink specifically <laughs> for this. Um, but you, where he's where he's delivering his speech, you know, before she's about to renounce, when she does her big renouncing of her faith in front of the crowd, where he's speaking... And you can see there, it is outdoors. The wind is moving, you know, the, the, the kind of the flag above him or whatever. But the background just looks the same as the background of the walls in the castle. Like, it, it's a remarkable thing where, and again, you have these shots of towers, but you don't have anything to frame the towers against. So they could just as easily be models. If I didn't do research for this podcast, I wouldn't know that they spent like 8 million francs building an actual castle pretty much to scale. Um, and you have like objects like there's something interesting in his composition. And it's it's kind of tied to that close up thing where there is almost nothing but faces like there is faces and then there is nothing else. Like, nothing else is any frame of reference. It might as well just be everything else in a, in a kind of a pot. There's no sense of how these objects relate to one another, which I find, like, interesting in, in visual grammar, um, I think, which is, is fascinating. Um, I think I think that's all part of how we're put in Joan's mindset and her frame of reference. If, like, the face is the way we experience not just her emotions, but everybody else's. And so by putting those buildings and the sky and whatever other external 
uh, attribute in the frame. The way the fact that it's shot that way, it kind of suggests that all all of that doesn't matter. The buildings, the churches, whatever else, all of that is secondary compared to the emotional response and the emotional experience we get through the faces, and not least of all Jones. Um, but that's kind of Dreyer's point. Like if he wants to get to a genuine emotional and spiritual truth about humanity, you have to go, as Max said so eloquently earlier, it's all via the face. The eyes have it. I owe. Um, before I kind of like, I wonder when you wrap up, I just want to talk a little bit about the movie's release and reception, but is there anything else you want to say about the movie itself? So Max, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we should or that merits conversation? Um, just, I... I, I finally want to come back to that Morden Hall uh, review, and I want to read the end of it. Um, so, the March 29th, oh, okay. 1929. Yeah. So, here we go. You want to hear the rest of Morden Hall? Is this okay? Go for it. Go Is for this it. okay? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Deck the halls, baby. Oh, there we go. Uh, the production ends with the agony of Jean, bound to the stake with the blazing wood around her, and her lips mutter, Where shall I be this evening, Father? And there is Warwick and his band of men, all wearing steel hats, curiously like those that the Americans wore in the World War. He is ever alert to see that this girl, then nineteen, shall not escape him, and when death comes to the figure seen through the smoke, one voice shouts, You have killed a saint. And above, birds are perceived in the sky. Yeah, it's beautiful. That that moment, that's that moment where the person in the crowd shouts out, you have killed a saint and all hell breaks loose is one of the greatest things that's ever happened in art. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I can't I can, I'll never be able to express what that moment means to me, because whether I fully believe that saints are a real thing, which I did once, or whether I believe that that is one of the silliest fictions that human beings have ever come up with, which is closer to what I believe now, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, 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 the film is receptive to, to both ideas and that there is obviously a tragedy that there is such a great, and, and perhaps the most profound tragedy possible, that there is such a great distance between how we ought to be acting toward each other and what just happened, uh, is, uh, again, it, I cannot put it into words, but, but amazingly Dreyer figured out a way to put it into images um, and but, and it gets me every time. And what shocks me as well is how all of that, the riot going on and this insanity that's unfolding, and yet Dreyer finds an anchor for it, a most unlikely anchor in this at once beautiful and to this day quite shocking image of Joan's body yeah. burning, her head afflict the the her body disintegrating slowly into a massive carbonized statue. And it's like, that would be horrifying uh, in any other, in any modern film, if you tried to put that in, because of course it would be accompanied by garish production and a woman screaming. But in this production, it takes on a very, very different role. And the way the camera moves around it, as if looking almost for, for her soul escaping from this uh from this statue. It looks almost like um almost like a Rodin or the Burgers of Calais, a statue like that. Uh searching for that 
beautiful, beautiful, soulful humanity that was there all throughout the film and suddenly gone. It's no wonder hell has broken loose because that wonderful, wonderful girl that we have been watching all through the film is gone. And the film continues to look for her as if to try and get away from the madness uh, going on around it. But no, it's... The, the whole place has gone to hell Yeah, we've that's right. it upon ourselves. What other response could be possible? What other response could make any possible sense than the, 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 the bedlam uh, that is unleashed there? There's there's no other c- correct response to to burning a saint or, frankly, anyone. Uh, <laughs> and that's exactly the point of the film. Yeah. She can be both. Yeah. Yeah. To Max's point there, just about the idea of like things you can't communicate but can communicate through film. I, again, that idea that you have early on that conversation about like the appearance of the angel Michael, and they're asking all these inane questions to get her to explain in words. Like, was he wearing clothes? What was his hair like? What did he look like? Can you tell us what he said? How did you know he was from God? And these are things that Joan herself can't answer. And again, so much of this movie hinges on language where they're trying to catch her in words, where they're trying to get her to admit, you know, you have the moment where the guy runs forward and says, that's a dangerous question. Don't answer it. But the idea that, yeah, that words are dangerous and tricky. And again, it's something for a silent film for one of like, arguably like among the last great silent films to make is that words are imprecise and they fail us and they trap us in some ways. And they're, they're not up to the task of expressing the full range of human experience. I, I just, I don't know. I find that a really sweet, like, powerful thing for a silent film Same to here. argue. But I, I love rooting for her, too, when she figures out her way out. She's like, oh, do you think yeah, that the... God was not able to clothe him? You know? <laughs> why would he cut them? Why would he Why would he cut his hair? Like, yeah. what, what reason would he have to cut it? Um, young, and again, female, that, that young female war, warrior absolutely destroys patriarchal questioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, How very things... 2023. But even, even and also like, for 2023, how appropriate that a silent film should urge us all to just shut the hell up. Um, and yet but, us um, four judges have been speaking here for how long? Uh, for, for, for far, far, <laughs> far too are, long. And what are we concluding? That's yeah. the question. There's, there's, there's and th- then, three close-ups framing us on the top of this Zoom window. <laughs> and a- a- Andrew Andrew is just staring like forlornly, tears forming in the corner of his eyes. Yeah. Um, like again, just very quickly to talk about it. One of the joys of watching a movie with Andrew, which I don't get to do in person as often as I would like, is that occasionally there are moments of like brilliant insight. Like that wonderful shot, again, camera movement as the camera pushes in and out from the tower as they're passing out the maces. Like they're throwing out the maces to the guards to get ready for the riot. Andrew makes the observation that doesn't look safe. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I miss, I miss it, watching. Hey, catch this mace. <laughs> yeah. um, oh dear. I wish I'd been there for that. It won't um, hurt um, Avengers, but I wish I had been. Can I, can I throw one more? Oh, go ahead. You can, no. <laughs> Go for it there, Max. Oh, I was going to say, I need to, I need to throw one more um, observation in. The reason why it was such an awful experience for me to show this to a film class exactly once. I only ever showed this, um, the reason why I only ever showed this to a film class once, and I only ever did show it to a film class once, um, and it was, a, it was a class about the representation of spirituality and specifically Christianity in cinema. And this was not the start of the class. We were like 10 weeks in at this point. So they should have been prepared to watch this movie. Um, but, the, I, 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 you know, when I opened it up for discussion after we watched the film, one of the students said, uh, I don't know, she just didn't look 19. I just sort of checked out at that point. 
<laughs> I just couldn't believe it. She just looked way older than 19. I don't know. And I, 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 I couldn't come back from that. I couldn't recover from that. I just didn't know what to do at that point anymore. And it's and and suddenly this film becomes Joan and the students are the judges and they just don't they just don't get it. And but part of me part of me feels an even greater emotional and spiritual attachment to this film because like it needs to be protected from the, from the people who just don't want to get it. Hopefully they self-select out and don't see it in most cases. And that's why it persists on the IMDb 250, because there are there aren't you know, rampaging hordes of people who want to show up and downvote it, um, which, you know, is what so many other lovely pieces of media have been subjected to over the years. Um, I don't know. I I think humans just aren't ready for a lot of art. Um, And and, and I think that and I think that and and to be honest, our our conversation here reveals that to an extent, too, that we're doing the absolute best we can with this. And we're still not quite getting at all of all of the layers, all of the valences, and 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 how and how much it can mean, and how and how great it is. Um, I I regret most of the words I have said during this podcast so far because I they're they're nowhere near equal to the film. Um, and, and like again, we should just before we wrap up, worth noting again the discussion of how it was produced. That that moment where Andrew said that's not safe, I was like, well, wait until you hear about a lot of how this film was produced. That blood spurt that we mentioned, which is how you know whether he used his first or second take, that was a I believe a production assistant or volunteer's arm. It wasn't Falconetti's arm to be clear, but somebody did volunteer to use their arm or subject their arm um, to get the blood like spray out of it on screen that was not movie magic as andrew said um i also learned this week that like on the set of hannibal when the movie hannibal when um ridley scott couldn't get a like stunt person to fall properly when tased he uh, convinced a pa to sit down for an hour and ask him anything he wanted about his movies and let himself be tased on camera to get the proper effect he was like okay you can have a conversation with me about anything you want for an hour and then we're going to tase you on camera to get you to somebody who falls properly. Tase me, bro. I'm, tase me, bro. Yeah. I'm waiting for <laughs> you to say, and that PA went on to become some great Brian guy. Fuller. Um, yeah. The, the, scene with, the scene with Ray Liotta did involve an, an actual lobotomy. <laughs> actual <brain>. um, <laughs> um, was yeah, was um, Ray Liotta's performance and appearance in Hannibal more dignified than Cocaine Bear, Darren? That's what I want to know. <laughs> we don't have time. To, uh, Max has seen Cocaine Bear. <laughs> yes, it, it was. He was much more dignified in Hannibal <laughs> than in Cocaine Bear. The, like the, the, the final cut to black at the end of Cocaine Bear says, in memory of Ray Liotta. And everybody, <laughs> oh! in, the th- everybody in the theater was like, oh, hell, that's right. He did die. We're all sad again. <laughs> Because, because for the, like the, we had totally forgotten yes. it somehow. We had totally forgotten it, and this stupid, really stupid movie there? we had been enjoying for its stupidity. And then, then at the very end, it's there was suddenly this one hundred eighty car wreck turn, you know, in memory of Ray Liotta. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I have it's some, like a, I have some ideas sure about cocaine bear, but this is for other. I I just remembered that again now to the extent that I'm not sure if I ever knew it the first time around. Uh, how that it's not possible. I would have known about. This. Well, this is like William. Didn't I tell you William Hurt died recently? And I mean, not that William I, Hurt I, died recently, but I told I you recently. I feel like that William Hurt maybe died. it's that I hear this kind of like celebrity dies news story, and I am like aware of it, but not taking it in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, um, but um, 
did it did, that everyone was taken from us in 2016. No, he was not. It's, it's that easier was to, last it's, year. Really, last it's year. easier to think of the people who weren't taken from us in <laughs> 2016. No, um, we the Max, you mentioned kind of like stuff that people kind of notice that they do, don't get the movie. I think we were watching it and there were cannons. And Darren was like, oh, yeah, the, the people were annoyed about that. Military historians were very annoyed by the use of the cannons, the non-canon use of cannons in this movie. Because there were cannons used in the 100-year war. Yeah, but they weren't mobile. Like, the thing is, like, you get the... Again, it's it's something very much like Potemkin-esque, where you follow the gun as the turns and then mm. it fires. And it's a very effective dramatic shot. And I just, like, I'm imagining, like, Max students being like, yeah, cannons didn't work like that in the uh, 1400s. <laughs> movie is ruined because it's one thing wrong. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, I, cinema skin. And she's not yeah, nineteen. Cinema, like, I love. I love yeah, that's two. We've got two cinema skins. Um, oh, I know. Oh, <laughs> the c- cinema sins have have ruined us because there was there was another student yeah. in that same class because it didn't end. The torture continued. There was another student who was like, "Why was there a nipple on screen? That just seemed weird and gratuitous." And I just I just didn't have a response. It was such a catastrophic class. Uh, well, the response to, the, the response I would have come up with is somebody who's offended by the set side of a nipple clearly isn't seeing enough of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. That's that's a, that's a, that's a good burn. Um, uh, Thank you. I yeah. wish I were there at the time to yeah. deliver it. Uh, also, I mean, if you put any interpretation you want, it's the Christ Child of the Virgin Mary's breast. Whatever. I mean, that's my interpretation. Right, but but, but we can also make it a, a, that, that works. But we can also make it a, a fully mater, material uh, explanation too, which is just that. Hey, guess what? In that crowd, there would have been mothers breastfeeding children, and exactly. uh, like like w- the same way that we see animals, and the same way that we see this this gesture on stilts, the, and goat the same being way that pulled. we yeah, the, like there are just people. There that are creatures were there. just. Going about their lives, however grotesque and strange you might find us. Yeah, and well, we could bring in the carnivalesque too if we want to. Like, yeah. it, I'm it, sure this isn't what you wanted, but I kind of hate your students. Uh, well, I, I've <laughs> had far better. I've had far better classes than that one. And to be fair, Thank I was, I was, a, I have a, I was a fairly green teacher at that point. This was all the way back in like 2008, 2009. Uh, now Max warms him up by showing Cocaine Bear. I was doing my master's in film at that time, so um, I shall I shall demur. Um, just but case. yeah, just very quickly, Andrea, worth noting again, there's some controversy around the Falconetti performance where there is some suggestion that he like would make her do takes multiple times. He'd ask her to kneel on stone in order to get a reaction from her. Mm-hmm. He'd ask her to kneel on stone and not cry and then try to convey that in the performance so as to layer the depth. Now, that is disputed. It's it worth noting disputed. that like, um, it is disputed. Uh, Dreyer's uh, biographers particularly seem to take uh, offense with that suggestion and include interviews from Falconetti where she basically praises his methods and his professionalism. So, yeah, debated at best. Yeah. All right. And Andrew, I want to throw open to you, like as the resident cynic on the podcast, as the uh, person who's maybe not been converted, as the, the person charged with heresy. Uh, do you have anything you want to say? Anything we haven't discussed already jumping out at you? With no, heresy? no, I, 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 I don't think I have anything to add. Like I'm only, ever, the, 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 and, and, and also I don't want to detract. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I don't think it's like necessary or like there was nothing about this movie that like you know upset or disgusted me or like kind of put me off or or or, or, or that it was it was just that I wasn't ready for it at the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, all right. Uh, just want to note, just worth noting, the release of this movie, it underperformed financially. Uh, the Society General de Films, I think, also had Napoleon released the same year as well, which also was very expensive and didn't perform as well as they needed it to do. So it was not a great year for them. Uh, and particularly for historical epics about French national figures. Um, but it is worth noting that they put a big effort into selling this to American audiences. And uh, I just want to read some headlines from the uh, posters and the newspaper clippings that were sold like to American audiences. So in the film Daily in February 9th, 1928, they ran announcing to the screens of America an unusual cinemagraphic accomplishment, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, and then obviously they had an advertisement on the 18th of February in Motion Picture News going, Society Générale de Films of Paris, France, invite the attention of critical America to an unusual motion picture, The Passion of Joan of Arc. And I love that for all these efforts to sell Joan of Arc to an American audience, seeing her as a breakout international figure, a figure with, again, as we've mentioned, universal appeal, who maybe doesn't have the baggage of, say, hypothetically a Napoleon uh, to anybody who is not French, you want to you, you want to sell this movie to um, a farmer in Missouri. It's unusual. It's French. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want to invite the attention of critical America. We want, we want critical America. But like, it should be noted that apparently, according to gossip columnist Luella Parsons, uh, the reaction from American audiences was unfortunately exactly what you would expect. Where, according to Parsons. 200, quote, smartly dressed women, unquote, walked out from the American premiere because, quote, they did not care for the cruelties, end quote, of the movie. Uh, it didn't, as we've kind of jokingly said, leave them smiling on the way out, unfortunately. Depiction is endorsement. Ah, clearly, that is that is what it is. Um, I mean, there is that wonderful note, I think, when they screened it in France for a bunch of, like, workers. Because, um, again, it's worth noting that Dreyer, throughout his life, protested the idea that this was an art house film. Dreyer was like, this is a film for everybody. This is a film that is accessible. I want everybody to see it. It's not an art house film. It's a film for everybody. When they filmed it for an audience of kind of like working class, uh, kind of, again, I, I don't remember what they worked at specifically. One of the notes on the cards, and this kind of stuck with me when I was doing research, was the most beautiful film I have ever seen. And perhaps the saddest, too. Um, and it's like you can kind of understand why maybe this was a hard sell to audiences in 1928, I think. It was the local 31st Playwrights Union. <laughs> um, the, the Association of Out-of-Work Film Critics. Um, but, in, okay. in, variety, in Variety, they said it was a deadly, tiresome picture and basically yeah. had said that it would have absolutely no resale value anywhere in the country. And I guess they ended up being right about that, but it's... Uh, it's sad to see because because again we saw the Morton Hall review we saw the people who were ready for it uh, who who were over the top rapturous um, and 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 I don't know everybody else just wasn't there for it it's too bad all all right I think that about wraps it up then I'm just going to go around once more Phil is there anything we haven't talked about in your notes that you want to talk about anything in my notes um, or anything uh, at all and like no 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 it's just I I have notes um I. I know you're like the guy who does his homework for this. Um, and I've attempted to, especially when it's a film that I felt I had so much to say. And I feel like I've completely tripped over my words today. Um, but um, I think between us, we've probably we've probably covered all the bases. And I would hope that maybe we might have sold somebody on viewing or reviewing this film. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm done. And and Max, your closing arguments, uh, whether for the prosecution or the defense. <laughs> uh, 
no closing arguments. Just uh, just go, go back go back and watch this film again five years from now. Um, right. And uh, you know, I I, I hope it, I hope it'll um, travel through time with you the way it has traveled through time with me and and meant more every time. All right, then. So what we normally do at the end of these episodes is we ask our guests to recommend something. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that brings them joy. So to give Phil, to give Max a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, so I spoke earlier on about the kind of skepticism about Joan of Arc as a kind of a nationalist figure. and um, But oddly enough, uh, for an Irishman, and I think a... Um, not maybe a nationalist, but believing in a certain kind of patriotism. Oddly enough, I have a kind of a soft spot for some forms of English nationalist media when they're kind of a metaphor for the indomitability of the human spirit. Like, I, I really liked um, Dunkirk, for example, the, 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 um, and, and, and the El, Elgar kind of. Um, at 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 the end. Oh, the use of the 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 yeah. the the, Nimrod, the, the Nimrods, yeah. Um, but the thing I'm going to recommend is something from the 100 Years War, not from that period, but um, about that period. Set set there is 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 William Shakespeare's Henry V, because we 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 kind of I I I think on these shores we tend to and and probably I think in America as well tend to focus on the the tragedies. Um, and don't go in as much for the, the for, for for the histories, which I think are still quite popular in Britain. Um, obviously because it has that connection with yeah. the place. Um, I I I like Henry V a lot, and it has like a, a a lot of those very memorable lines, like "Once more unto the breach, dear friends, mm. or close up the wall with our English dead." And they, 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 they sit upon the ground and tell sad tales about the death of kings. Is that the games of force? You also have um, and gentlemen you... in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. I mean, the speeches they do not get the same. This is Crispin's day yeah. speech. I think I, I I referenced it from my stag do when people couldn't <laughs> when people couldn't come because of COVID and various <laughs> other things. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let, let us and uh, hold their manhoods cheap. <laughs> yeah. Very hot. I caught COVID on your stack. <laughs> exactly. And you wouldn't have wanted to have shared that honor <laughs> with any fewer um, <laughs> or with any greater, sorry, or whatever the line is. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd recommend, I'd recommend that. And, um, Kind of there, there's 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 a lot of kind of audio versions of it as well. But if you can catch it, um, do um. And another thing we mentioned, Richard Einhorn, um, for uh, Voices of Light. Obviously, listen to that. But also, Richard Einhorn was the producer for uh, Glenn Gould's. Well, I believe he was for Glenn Gould's um Goldberg Variations, Ooh. which is fantastic. Um, Another Hannibal connection on the podcast. That's oh, it, God. yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to Ridley Scott's Hannibal. <laughs> so yeah, check that out as well. It's 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 wonderful. All right then, and Max, what would you recommend? Well, Ray Liotta has his entrails pulled out in Cocaine Bear. Spoiler alert! So that's a Hannibal <laughs> connection too. Uh, uh, no, uh, actually, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend Women Talking. I saw that uh, three weeks ago. And it was fantastic, and it put me in a state of spiritual reflection 
and uh, profound sadness in many cases that uh, that that few films do. The Passion of Joan of Arc being number one among them, but but there are a couple of other films like Babette's Feast uh, that get me to have a good spiritual cry, and Women Talking is a new film that that also um, that also did that. Uh, if women talking isn't a spiritual film, there's no such thing as a spiritual film. And I, and I hope that those who like to brand themselves as spiritual people will watch that film. Um, best picture nominee this year as well. Oh yeah. 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 All right. And Phil, what would you recommend for enjoying at the moment? Um, I'm going to recommend two things and uh, staying with uh, Max's set of recommendations of films that are right up to date, I'm going to recommend another Best Picture nominee uh, centred on a woman, uh, the interpretation of who, of whose actions and uh, and discourse are very open to interpretation. Tar, uh, which to my mind is a masterpiece featuring a never better performance than Kate Blanchett in a, in a career full of performances that are Never better than the last one. Um, it's a, an astonishing piece of work, um, which is a dark horse in the race for Best Picture at the Oscars. Whether that matters to anybody or not, it certainly shouldn't. Whether it can right. narrow the fields or not, you know. Mm. It, the Todd Fields? Is that what you were doing there? Yeah, yeah that was okay. over. Sorry, it's getting so. late. <laughs> I'll let you have that one just because I love Tower so much. And also on release at the moment, and another film, a courtroom drama, uh, one with very, very uh, considered thoughts on uh, women, how we treat them, how we relate to them, is uh, Saint-Omer, uh, the debut of documentarian Alice Diop uh, about a woman in the, uh, ty- uh, the living in the town of the name who is put on trial for allegedly killing her infant child. And it's told from the point of view of a uh, of an academic a writer who is there to cover the case, but finds her own prejudices and her own thoughts challenged as more details come to light about what led to this crime. It's a fascinating film. And um, in keeping with the francophone origins of our subject this evening, it's a French film and it's dealing with a lot of the same themes. And in a lot of, uh, in similar ways, a lot of close-ups, a lot of shots just on people as they recite their side of the story. Uh, a riveting watch. And two quick recommendations for me. First one is because Andrew recommended uh, Henry the Sixth, Henry the Fifth, Fifth, Henry the Fifth, Henry the Fifth. Apologies, The Chimes of Midnight, the Orson Welles, uh, John Falstaff movie. Uh, which is just, again, a late career masterpiece from Wells in a career that seems full of late career masterpieces that were never properly appreciated and have hopefully begun to be gradually reclaimed. Um, He's the Kate Blanchett of directors. Of his own era, yes, he was. (laughs) Um, But like, Again, it's a movie that I watched on Criterion. I, I just fell in love with it instantly. I also rewatched. Uh, I also rewatched like F for Fake as well, which is also a movie, oh, is more widely seen, I think. But so I think Chimes fun. of Midnight. If you have not seen it, uh, and if you like this, and you like kind of period stuff, and you like reimagining like historical context and drama, it's a nice companion piece to this. Even though Orson Welles is a very different director and performer. Uh, than many of the people working on this movie as well. Um, and then the I other might thing, say something I mean here. I think Chimes oh, at Midnight is Chimes at Midnight is better with the sound turned off. Like all's well that ends well, I guess. Uh, no, um, I only say that because the like or wait has Criterion like fixed the audio mix because it's it's like famously bad audio mix on that yeah, movie. I, 
Did they did they but, fix it or is no, it still really bad? No, I bad? don't. I don't believe okay. they fixed it. I don't okay. believe it. Um, <laughs> I, I was it's like, available in other editions, though. Surely. Like, well, I mean, I watched it on the streaming. Reasons? I watched it on the streaming service. I watched it on the streaming platform. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do not know. I literally was just I was going through. A I'm going to be looking space. for a copy after this. No, I, not, I like I like Chimes at Midnight a lot, and I don't mean Criterion specifically. I mean like I think it's been yeah, like a famously bad audio mix from the very beginning. Uh, yeah. I've never but, so what you're suggesting stuff. is that they should go back and watch Vertigo and be like, well, what if we just take like the music and just like ping modern Foley sounds on top? Of, it, of course, that's what they should do. That's what they should do. Hey, there's some great editing in the battles, though. Also, I'm here for yes. Tar and I hope it wins. Best picture doesn't matter, but I hope it wins anyway. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of other recommendations for myself, just German expressionists, uh, silent cinema. Um, we mentioned that Warm, who it's did the production great. design. It's it is... all good. I couldn't pick one. <laughs> um, thank you. I'm very Tom Cruise at the moment. <laughs> I, that was a se- I was segueing into mentioning a couple. Thank you, okay, Andrew, sorry, for that. Um, but... <laughs> when, you, when you said a couple of recommendations, I was thinking it was going to be a couple. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I was I was just That was the second one. And then I was going to give a couple of sub-examples. But I wasn't going to. Okay. Now, now it's a thing. Now it's all. <laughs> I was just going to say German Expressionist Cinema and then name like the cabinet of Dr. Calgary or like Nosferatu and all this, like the very obvious like beginners level stuff. But as a, as somebody who grew up with Tim Burton, it's like yeah, German Expressionism was like my most accessible form of like silent cinema uh, because that style and that aesthetic was something that as a teenager I loved. So if you do like silent film, which I think is massively like underrepresented on the list is, you know, not necessarily, you know, is, is it vibrant and exciting and all that sort of stuff, but maybe doesn't get the same focus that, say, the golden era of Hollywood does when we come to writing about and discussing the history of the medium. Um, German expressionism would be where it would start. And I would specifically start with the cabinet of Dr. Calgary and Nosferatu. All right. All right, then. So uh, if listeners are looking for a bit more fill in their lives, where can they find you? Watch out what you have to. Who, me? Um, uh, well, I'm on Twitter for some strange reason. I mean, I was a holdout you're for back, a long baby. time. You're back, baby. Finally, they that. fixed Twitter. Finally they and you're fixed, back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just well, waiting for Elon Musk to buy Twitter. And then I was just like, yeah. yeah. I was on it before he bought Twitter. Let me stretch that. <laughs> that was one of Musk's promises, wasn't it? It was like, going to bring back Phil Bagnall. That was the first. That was like item number three. Well, right? somebody they, had to. It might as well have been him. Um, but anyway, I'm on there appropriately enough in this yeah. uh, context as cynic, at cynical Phil. Uh, perfect. And have you done some writing recently? Am I misremembering? I thought, I thought you were going to do some writing. I thought you were planning some I'm writing. trying to. I'm trying to. But that's the most okay. place you'll find me at the moment. But thank okay, you for the right. encouragement. Okay. We're hyping um, it still. We are hyping it. We're, we want build anticipation. Phil Hive activate. Um, Max. What you at? Where are you up to? What can we find you? Uh, at 10 o'clock dot on Twitter. Um, MaxTaline.com is where I put everything. I've sort of spread out across the internet. Like I, 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 treat, I treated YouTube as a photo bucket back in 2006, and I never decided to make like a proper channel out of it. And then I throw, you know, video essays over on Vimeo sometimes. So I collected it all in MaxTaline.com. You can go there if you want to see the stuff. Um, and maybe I can finally guilt Darren into watching my 131 minute a supercut of supercuts, uh, which was my, <laughs> my my project, my project on the whole history um, and philosophy of the supercut, which was released in mid 2021. Oh man, um, sign me up! It's very good. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to come straight out and say that yeah, I spent no, three years on it. And it's really good. Uh, okay, it's it's in the show notes. It's under your name. It's at the very top of the show notes a super for the episode. Of super cuts, uh, is, is there? 
Uh, but uh, and I've had a couple of projects since then, little video essays, nothing, nothing huge. I've got like uh, eight different things in the pipeline right now of coming eventually. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Um, I don't know what we're doing next week because this is so far in the future. This is um, this is a very long episode and Andrew's editing it, so I don't feel like I'm going to put a timeline <laughs> on it and say that it has a dude. Maybe it'll Andy never has, be released. Has, has, has <laughs> Release the Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can join us. We'll be back in a fortnight. Uh, we're still kind of staggering. We did that very silly Chucky thing back in April, which we're very proud of. Um, but is it that does... in the past? That's in the past now. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, no, Andrew, I'm not asking you to edit this before the 1st of April. Just, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm setting realistic expectations here. Um, that was wild. If this, if the, this, isn't the... coming out for, if this isn't coming out for a while, does that make all our Oscar talk completely redundant? Totally redundant. Totally irrelevant. <laughs> Why did we even mention you... it? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you I know... cut that out? Can you please cut that out? <laughs> it, ooh, I or mean, the start. Tomorrow. Whichever works. <laughs> The stars were really out for the Oscars this year. Like, I love the spectacle of it. I can't believe um, Kate Blanchett pulled Michelle. Punched Michelle. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, but I, we'll be back in two weeks. I don't Thank- think we're going to do it again where, where like, okay, no matter so how much you like this episode, we're not going to release <laughs> another one. Seven today. on the same day. <laughs> yeah. No, we are not going to release seven consecutive Joan of Arc episodes today. I can say that is safely not on the cards. Um, but thank that. Yeah, we did all the Chuckies in a day. But thank you very much, Max. Thank you very much, Phil. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long. I'm sorry it took as long as it did. Um, but this is great. Thank you for, for coming on, guys. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, guys.